This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. My guest today is living the dream. Not only does he work for a sport he loves and a place he adores, but for a team that once captured his heart as a young boy. Mark Langell is the Los Angeles Dodgers historian, and I can truly say I've never met a person more suited for the job he has. My nephew, when he was seven years old, went to Tommy's office and got the Facts of Life speech. And he said, Michael, you look like a fine young man. I want you to always remember one thing. And I thought it was going to be stay in school, don't do drugs, listen to your parents. He said, always stand in the middle of the photo so they can't crop you out. And my nephew had a blank look on his face and I mouthed to him, I'll explain later. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from business entrepreneurs, Pulitzer Prize winners, and graphic artist Mike Greenlee. My appointment is with a guy named Dr. Frank Job, the guy that actually invented the Tommy John surgery, the guy that cut open Tommy John's arm and created this surgery that saved thousands of pitchers. At the time, he probably hadn't saved thousands of pitchers. Again, he's Dr. Job. But to me, he's Dr. Job, the Dodgers doctor. (laughs) That's all you care about. He's the Dodgers doctor. This guy's got to be great, right? Right. He shook Tommy's hand. He's got to be great. He knows Bill Bueller, the Dodgers trainer, that I know the roster front and back. I've seen him on TV. Like, this is amazing. I'm going to Cedar Sinai Hospital. That's on TV all the time. There's commercials for that place. So I was more excited about that leading up to this than, 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 the, than the prospects of fixing my arm so that I could play Division I college baseball and possibly win a national championship. Go to justagoodconversation.com for all our archives. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor before diving into my conversation with Los Angeles Dodgers team historian, Mark Langell. I am so lucky and so fortunate that I have finally got the one person I have wanted to talk to for a very, very long time. I have you, Mark. Thank you so much for some time today. Matt, it's a pleasure to be with you. This is great. You even got your Dodger blue on. You're ready to go. I wanted to dress up for the radio, you know. <laughs> I'm surprised we don't have the uh, pregame on for the uh, game today. I got to focus on this. I, I got to focus. It's, yeah. If I delve into the pennant race, I'll be too distracted. This time of the year, it's important. It's very exciting, too. Yeah. Yeah. What's well, we talked about beforehand. When was the last time this late in September it meant anything between the two clubs? Well, here's the amazing thing. You talk about Dodgers and Giants, and so many people are caught up in the moment. What's going to happened in 2021 and I like to think how amazing that these teams have played since the 1880s that if you think a hundred years ago the Dodgers were in the World Series in 1920 and the Giants won it all in 1921 and 1922 and then okay you got Gabe Kapler as the manager of the Giants and he had come from the Dodger system then you think about Leo DeRocher switching teams in 1948 and there's a pennant race 1951 (laughs) 
You ever heard of Bobby Thompson? Yeah. Giants win the pennant. <laughs> Giants win the pennant. And the funny thing about that is all this little minutia, that famous call was recorded by a Brooklyn Dodger fan who was trying out his phonograph. <laughs> and he was so excited that the Dodgers were going to win the pennant. And even though his heart was broken, he's looking at this record and he thought, well... Why not call Russ Hodges, see if he wants a copy of this? Because nobody archived that stuff back then. No. So no. this famous Giants win the pennant, Giants win the pennant. You can thank a Brooklyn Dodger fan for that. <laughs> and th think think if he just decided, eh, I'm not going to make that call. I'm yeah. going to let this record just go to the trash. Absolutely. Think of all the great things that uh, 1959, the Dodgers won the championship and KMPC decides to archive and, and make a record album. The Dodgers didn't do it back then. And so the Dodgers, 1965, the really first time that they decided to save something, uh, Vin Scully in the eighth inning of Colfax's Perfect Game said, hey, why don't you call the station and make a recording just in case? And that's really how it started with Vin, but he would just do it for no hitters. And so one of the, the wow. hardest things to find is audio uh, from the 40s, 50s, 60s. A lot of people, amateur, uh, you know, recordings out there, that's the only thing that exists. Off the of radio. Yeah, off of the radio. Why do you think that was? Was that just clubs not seeing the long-term history? I think it's the same excuse why NBC didn't save the Johnny Carson's shows. You know, when he found out that they had taped over it, he took over that production. And people just didn't think back then. Because think in the 1940s, 1950s, nobody saved uniforms. There was no such thing as memorabilia. Right. Think about Disneyland. Those original cells, they sold them for a buck a piece in the 1960s at Disneyland. <laughs> nobody ever thought about original artwork. When, when did clubs even start selling merchandise in stadiums? Well, Danny Goodman had been the concession director for the Pacific Coast League. So when the Dodgers came into Los Angeles in 1958, he's basically the only hire. Bob Hunter, the Herald Examiner, said, hey, you got to hire this guy. And he put the Dodgers on the map in Southern California as far as taking all these different souvenirs and putting the Dodger logo on it. Because back in 37, when he was with Newark for the Yankee Farm Club, he was the one that thought of the idea of souvenirs. Harry M. Stevens is the one that thought of selling food at the ballpark, but Danny Goodman is the one that said, you know what, somebody like, might like to have a souvenir from the game. And so he also did the concessions for the Flamingo Hotel. What? So he was used to selling things, and this was sort of unprecedented. When you think about the 1958, 59, those days at the Coliseum, it wasn't just Dodger merchandise. You could get hats and pennants of other major league teams as well. Whoa. It wasn't just Dodgers. That's big. Well, he wanted to promote the game. Right. When did – you're a Valley boy, right? You grew up in the Valley? I grew up in South Pasadena. Yeah. Did you enjoy those times as a young lad? Oh, absolutely. With that uh, uh, Dodger Stadium just 10 minutes away on the 110 freeway. It was wonderful because, you know, I always joke. People say, how do you become team historian? And I say, it's very easy. If you don't hit the ball in Little League, you're well on your way. And I pause for the <laughs> laughter and thank you for the laughter. But it's absolutely true. But it's true, sure. But I love the atmosphere. And, and my coaches were very nice. My teammates were nice. I, I love that atmosphere. And going to ball games, my first game, 1972, I was in box seats 
44 M1. I still have the ticket. But basically, I grew up in the pavilion, and I would love Sundays because they would have autograph Sunday, mm-hmm. and you'd hear the organ, and, and it was just a time where you could just focus on the game, and it wasn't like you had to rush there after school or anything like that. And it was just such a unique atmosphere, and you'd wonder who was going to be in the bleachers signing the autograph that day, and you could see the batting practice, and I just love that atmosphere, and it just warms my heart. You know, I'm 57 years old, 49 years I've been at the ballpark one way or another, and I still have that feeling. I've never had a bad day at the ballpark, but especially Sunday mornings I love because it just takes me back to I would be able to sit all day in the pavilion, and, yeah. and I would stare at the bullpen. And I would, and it was kind of like a little ant farm, and kind of like this little secret part of the ballpark where you could see the pitchers warm up, or you could see, you could see things going on that you wouldn't normally see if you were in other areas of the, of right. the game. Yeah, you could really peek in and see that that little that little behind the scenes. And and I was very nostalgic when we got our World Series ring in in 2021 because we had the ceremony in center field, but I I. I just sort of sat in those seats and I was just like, you got to be kidding me. How how did this happen? Um, because those seats are still there uh, right did, next did, to the bullpen. Did your father, was it your father a Dodger fan? No, my father was not a baseball fan at all. He, My mother actually is the one that took me to games. Um, my, so you my, and mom? Yeah, my mom and my sister and my dad, you know, we, we went to the first game, the four of us. Uh, but pretty much on, on, you know, my mom would take take my sister and I uh, to, to the games. Um, my father had a good sense of humor, though. He grew up on the East Coast. So I remember going to a game with him at 1977, very first play, Bill Russell and Dusty Baker collided. Boom! And they're just laying there like they're dead. And my dad, without missing a beat, said, well, that was fun. What do you want to do now? <laughs> But he never, he, he said the only ball player he ever, he ever heard of was a guy named Sammy White because he, he thought he didn't look like a ball player because he was this ball backup catcher of the Boston Red Sox. And flash forward 18 years later and my math teacher, Mr. Ucrapina, was talking about growing up and he said, yeah, I had a favorite player. It was a catcher, but he didn't look like, and I said, Sammy White? And he looked at me and he goes, how did you know that? <laughs> And so that's a great example as far as all these little bits and pieces in life somehow uh, filling in the blanks in other, in, in other years, in other eras. What drew you to, to baseball? What was that early love that we were like, I, I really do love the sport? I think it was kind of like a reality show as far as they had all this programming. I was a very good reader, so I would learn um, I would learn, you know, the storylines, what was going on. The very first year I paid attention. And my first game is 72. 73, I collect the trading cards. And 74 is the first year I'm plugged in. I'm ready to go because what happens in the offseason of 73? Hank Aaron is one home run away from tying Babe Ruth. So I know that storyline. I'm all ready to go. And so that's when it really starts. And in 1974, the Dodgers win the pennant. And right. so right off the bat, I'm spoiled. But I, I think I was spoiled, but it was, 
you, you don't want to think of it at the time. It was a good thing that they lost the World Series, but it was kind of like the bad news bears as far as, you know, in that movie. They get to the championship game and then they lose. And it was such a great ride that year just to see the Dodgers and the Reds going at it. And, my, and I decided Jimmy Wynn was going to be my favorite player. And Jimmy Wynn on the 15th, on a on September 15th, on a Sunday, Jimmy Wynn, that's hits right. a grand slam against the Reds. And if you ever see the movie Pride of the Yankees, uh, when Lou Gehrig hits the homer and the kid in the hospital bed gets the real wide eyes, that was me because I had never heard a crowd just suddenly erupt like that. And, and it was a sound that I had never heard and I'll never forget because all of a sudden it was just this unleash of cheering. Just, and I was standing on the, on the field level, so maybe the acoustics made it more dramatic. Um, but when your guy hits a grand slam against the Reds, uh, in the pennant race, you, you never forget that. Maybe about 30 years later when we had a Magic Johnson bobblehead giveaway, Jimmy Wynn called and he, he said, hey, Mark, uh, I wonder if you can get me one of those bobbleheads. And back then they were hard to get. Sure. It, maybe the first week it was, it was kind of rare. And I said, sure, Jimmy, I'll send you mine. And my coworkers are like, what are you doing? Why would you send it to him? I said, if your favorite player ever calls you and asks you for something, you give him whatever you want because um, Jimmy was, it was so nice to be able to have that relationship with Jimmy uh, post-career. He taught me a great lesson because I met him for the first time briefly, the last home game in 1975. It was like 9-28-75 a Sunday and he's there for autograph day. And I take a picture of him and sort of the flashbulb pops and that type thing. And I got that beautiful Jimmy Wynn signature. In 1990, I go to the old timers day luncheon and there he is. And I said, Jimmy, I was a big fan of yours. It's a pleasure to meet you. By that time I was a reporter for Pasadena Star News. And I said, I was there when you hit that grand slam against the Reds. And he told me, I never hit a grand slam with the Dodgers. Jimmy, that, that pretty much is the cornerstone of my childhood. I think I'd remember that. And he goes, no, no, I think I'd remember. I, 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 don't, rem I don't think I did. And that was a Saturday, which was fine. Sunday, they're going to play the game. So the next morning, I had my Los Angeles Times clipping uh, from 1974 that said that grand moment and the follow-through swing, Art Rogers of the LA Times had gotten a great photo behind home plate and so you could see the swing. You could also see the shoes, which I later got, the Jimmy Wynn shoes. And he goes, well, what do you know? I guess I did. And it taught me a great lesson because when they're on the field, they're not with carrying around the sports almanac and looking how they are. Maybe he had a headache that day. Maybe, you know, you just never know. Right. So in that moment, he didn't realize what he had done. And it taught me a great lesson because they're out there playing the game and we've got our media guides and trading cards and things like that. He honestly didn't know that he had hit a grand slam. About maybe five or six years later, Baseball Digest came out and they had a, uh, a section to the magazine called The Game I'll Never Forget. And I thought, and it said Jimmy Wynn, and I thought, well, he's going to talk about, you know, being the Astros' all-time home run leader or something like that. And he said, it was a Sunday afternoon, 1974. We're facing the Reds. And he gives this grand, he regurgitates the Grand Slam story that I had included in one of my books and we'd always talked about. And I was cracking up going, well, he finally got it. And, he got it. Yeah. I, I remember him. I had his uh, trading card. And I always loved him because he was like a buck sixty 
tops. He just didn't look like no. a big giant baseball player. But he had a very heavy bat. Uh, yeah. And and that was his nickname, the Toy Cannon. The interesting thing was he only hit about two twenty three in nineteen seventy three, yet they put him on the cover of the Dodger Media Guide. After they had traded for Quad Osteen, they traded Osteen to the Astros and they traded Willie Davis to the Expos to get Mike Marshall the reliever. And so suddenly they put this two twenty three hitter from another team on the cover of the yearbook. They really rolled the dice because Garvey wasn't Garvey yet. No. And the yeah. infield had just sort of started. But yeah, they're kids at that point. Exactly. And they had sort of lost the pennant race in 73. They they'd had 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 a very good year, won something like 92 games, but the Reds pulled away in September. Yet they put Jimmy Wynn on the cover. So that was uh that was and he ended up comeback player of the year with 32 homers and the Dodgers won the pennant. Yeah, that was a hell of a year for him. That was very exciting. And the nice thing was that in the World Series, the most amazing moment was he had a sore arm by then. And I don't don't if you remember one of the early games when um, Joe Ferguson made that wonderful throw from right field on the fly because Reggie Jackson had hit what looked like a sacrifice fly and Sal Bando was going to tag and Jimmy Wynn had said, look, I've only got one throw in me. And Fergie <laughs> cuts in front of Jimmy Wynn and on the fly throws a strike to Jaeger. Bando runs over Jaeger, holds onto the ball, holds it up in the air. That's That picture's on the Sports Illustrated the next week. Mm-hmm. And it's just, just a great moment. Even though the Dodgers lost four games to one, four of the five games were decided by three to two scores. And it was just very, very exciting. You originally asked, how did you become a fan? When you go through something like that in the summer, and this, you learn about Vin Scully talking about this, and you learn about this beautiful stadium, and Danny Goodman selling all these like little knickknacks at the souvenir stand, <laughs> and it's this, you realize it's this little culture, this little world, and it was just something that I just naturally was attracted to. My father said that very first game, I was looking at the couple in front of me that was writing down something, some kind of shorthand in a magazine, and it turned out that those were people keeping score. But he said, I took it, I took to it like duck to water. I was just so interested. And when I see that box score to, to July 15, 1972, I can't tell you exactly what the starting lineup was. I can't tell you play by play of the game because that was the one game where all the emotions as far as what is this place? What is this field? What is this music? What is this atmosphere? It just bombarded me as far as what is this place? And, and that was the exciting thing. This has to be a special place. I've never sure. experienced something like this before. And that's what I remember. When I see the box score, I'm like, oh, okay. You know, but I, 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 it's one of the few games I can't tell you really the play-by-play what happened because... I, I wasn't into it. That was the thing that drew me in. Sensory overload. Exactly. You're just absorbing and that. I still remember like it was yesterday. Was that your first big event as a childhood? Like you didn't go to a SC or UCLA football game or anything. So that was it. So that, that, was, the, that was the very first. Yeah, you that's, know, that's, maybe a big, as, that's a big event then for a little guy. Maybe, at the, maybe as a kid you remember the Hollywood Bowl, but I don't remember being wowed by, oh my gosh, it's the Hollywood Bowl. Or, you know, right. you see movies, okay, Sound of Music, but you don't really have the, 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 the grasp to know this is one of the greatest movies of all time. You're thinking, okay, I mean, I like the movie, but you don't have perspective. Right. I'm in the dark with a bunch of people watching a screen. But when you're at a baseball game, even before the game starts, there's so many things for you to take in. Like you're saying, the bullpen, the colors, the smell, the grass, players. 
everybody else's energy just walking through the ballpark. I mean, you probably, if you think about it, you might have to even go like, where did we park? Because that's a different entrance. Changes your whole perspective on how you see the ballpark, whether you come in from the pavilion or from the very top. It's, it's an unbelievable ballpark. I don't know who designed it on purpose that way, but you can, I, I, if I bring people to the first time, I like to bring them to the top so they can look down on the cathedral. But then there's also coming through the pavilion, looking up at it is just as gorgeous. It's just a cathedral from another side. The thing I never get tired of is 10 minutes before the game, looking at the looks on people's faces because they want to be there. And it's people of all ages and it's that anticipation. And that's the beauty of it. People want to be there. It's not that they've got to go to Costco and get their Sunday shopping done. It's not that, you know, we're in line at the DMV or jury duty or we're at the hardware store. We have to pick something up. That look on their face and just the fact that they're happy to be there and and even opposing uh, fans. It's wonderful because nobody knows what's going to happen. Yet in about 10 minutes, it's all about to start. And, and that's what I love, just to see the looks. That never changes in, that, in those 10 minutes. You know, maybe an hour later, you'll see a different look on somebody's right. face, depending yeah. on what the scoreboard <laughs> looks like. But those 10 minutes before the game, that anticipation of well, what's going to be in this package today. You're right. It, it is amazing how those moments do touch someone's heart. Because my wife can say, she'll immediately can, she'll go, Oh, I wore my. I was in the Dodger fan club. I love Dusty Baker, and I wore my my little satin blue jacket. And we, used to, you know, her family was large, and they would sit way up at the top. And she goes, "Oh, I, that was like the best time of my life. I was seven. And immediately, this woman becomes a seven year old, and she's Giddy's a schoolgirl, and she, you could see her transform. It's like that with kids. It's like that going to a ballpark. You can relive so many unbelievable moments. Oh, I sat there. I saw this. I sat there. I saw that. I mean, I remember my dad scalping tickets on the way in so we can see the Dodgers play the Astros and Mike Davis, Mike Scott, the pitcher, and Fernando go at it in an unbelievable duel. Like, it went extra innings and it was just unbelievable. But my dad and I and my two brothers, we had the time of our life and we could still talk about that like it was yesterday. We sat down the first base side and we just it was great. And it was like the four of us and nothing else. We just ate popcorn dogs and my dad just enjoyed his three boys for six hours or whatever it was. That's wonderful. And it's funny with the emotion because it was 2017 or 2018 World Series. And I'm walking along the stadium and the game's going to, you know, World Series game's going to start in the evening. So I think I'm going to lunch. And so this is still six hours before the event they have on the TV, the 1978 World Series, Dodgers versus Yankees. And I'm saying to myself, why the heck are we playing this? Because suddenly I'm getting all the emotion as far as you know, Brian Doyle, Ken Clay, Jim Beatty. This is not going to be a happy ending, Your folks. Blood pressure's Who going thought up. this was a good idea? You know, and I mean, yeah, it's a historic game, but I'm getting these. I'm, I'm getting these flashbacks to Reggie sticking his hip out and the whole series turning around. And so, but it's funny because you still have that emotion, and right. it's been X number.
number of years since this, and you're going, this does not make me feel good to see Brian Doyle at the plate because, you know, or because he's going to hit 438 in this series and not do anything the rest of his career except for this one week against the Dodgers. But I'm sure somebody thought, oh, Dodgers, Yankees. Oh, let's, yeah, this will be fun. And I'm like, well, so much for lunch. Did you go into your office and scream quietly into a pillow? Or? Sometimes, sometimes you just have to shut certain things off because right. people will plan ceremonies and you're just like, no, no, that's not, that's, you know. That's, that's going to end. It's very that's, bad. You know, who you're having to throw out the first pitch is not a go, good omen because, you know, but you don't want to be the wet blanket. And right. I, I, I can remember in the Phillies, those LCS in, in oh. 2008, 2009. Those were rough. And we lose in 2008 and 2009. You want to be an optimist, but you just have to see how it plays out. And I just wasn't, I, I you know, when people are already talking about, oh, I don't want to go there for the World Series. I want to, and I'm going, oh, please don't talk like that. Yeah. And I still can remember going into my office because I just didn't want to see one of the innings, like the seventh or the eighth, because you just sort of have a gut feeling like if, the, if, if we bought, I don't want to see it live. I'll just, be, and so I remember being distracted and buying a brand tricky contract on eBay. And even though I bought it, I still look at it now and I still get the flashback to, it was like a Homer off of Corey Wade and then something off of Broxton. And I'm, you know, you still have that emotion. And, and there was a time, I think around 2008, I have a very hard time watching the team in the playoffs because we had a, a viewing party. And remember, from 1988 until 1995, 1995-96, they, they get to the playoffs. But until 2008, they don't win a playoff game right. because 95-96-2004, uh, uh, Lima wins in 2004, that shutout. But by that time, they're already down two games to none, so it was nice to break the streak. But... Many times now, 2008, I have a very hard time watching. And I remember the story about Jerry West and Laker games in the playoffs driving around on the freeway. And I totally, I, I totally can sympathize because too many things go through my head. Now, if we get to the World Series, I tell the young people, enjoy it. You never know when it's going to occur next. And I can watch the World Series with no problem. And in fact, the 15 to 14 game, uh, Dodgers at 13 12. 15-14 uh, was the Blue Jays uh, and the and the Phillies in 93. But that 13-12 to 12 game, that crazy game in Houston, 2017, when we in Houston, I had the time of my life. And I loved it. And it was one of my favorite days. Why? Because my nephew, Michael, was my plus one. And he was a high school student. There you go. I'm Uncle Mark in that, in that moment. I'm not going to bombard him with trivia and everything yeah. like that he's going to roll his eyes anyway going oh gosh don't get him started yeah, but go. i just wanted this trip to be for him and enjoy it here's the envelope with the per diem do whatever you want this is this is for you so in that moment i enjoyed it but if we're going to say let's say we're in the league championship series and it's game seven if i'm not having to do something relating to the game I will happily mow your lawn. I will happily 
hide in a Chinese restaurant. I will happily go to Nordstrom Rack and, you know, anything but watch the game because suddenly you'll be thinking about Bobby Thompson. You'll be thinking about 1962 in the playoffs when, when Alston is saving Drysdale for game one of the World Series, which never occurs. Right. When you're thinking about 1991 pennant race, when they thought that Ramon Martinez just had tennis elbow and they, did, they kept putting him out there and they ended up losing by one game. All this stuff like a popcorn machine goes through your head. And so at some point, you just have to say, look, don't drive yourself crazy. 2008, we had a viewing party. I think the third batter, it was Dodgers Cubs. And it's like, my chest should not be feeling this way. And so, and, and you don't want to be the type that ruins it for others. So they all laugh at me because in the first couple rounds, it's kind of like, have fun, good yeah. luck, yeah. good luck with that. And, and I have the discipline not to watch it because it just drives you crazy. I, I can totally, yeah, I could totally understand that. So where were you as a young guy thinking, okay, what do I want to do? Do I want to write? Do I... As you said, you weren't going to become the Dodger center fielder. What was your career choices? What were you falling in love with in high school? I was very lucky because uh, in high school, one of the, the cool moments for me was I received an envelope in my English class, and it was an invitation to join the school newspaper. Oh, and an I, invitation? Yeah, I had never said, so we'd, like we'd like you to be a member of the, the Tiger. That was the school mascot, How did the they Tiger find newspaper. You? Good grades? No, not good grades. Good, good. <laughs> no, because apparently by Cutting bringing the, by bringing the sport <laughs> by bringing the sports page to class every day, uh, my English teacher sensed that I like sports. Oh, and by probably noticing on hot days when I would sit there with a sweatshirt and, uh. and listen to the sleeve, he probably deduced that there was a game going on. And so something like that, little things like that can really change your life because um, an invitation to the school paper, and then I always tell kids, I said, the hardest thing in the world sometimes, I said, raise your left hand, then raise your right hand. Now, it wasn't that hard, was it? Now imagine if somebody's asking for a volunteer and you're the only person in your class that's interested in something, yet you don't want to do that in front of your, you don't want to raise your hand in front. And so I'm in class and somebody asked, does anybody want to be, um, uh, does anybody want to be the scorekeeper for the basketball team? And I thought, well, my friends on the basketball team and everything like that, and I didn't volunteer at first. And then at, you know, at brunch, I, I, I looked into it and that job you would call in the results to the newspaper. Well, I didn't realize it, but the person that was in charge of the prep sports thought I was doing a good job. And one day he comes out to cover the game and I said, you're so-and-so, Glenn Parsons. He goes, yeah. And he goes, would you like to come in and work for us and take the scores over the phone? I'm in 10th grade. And absolutely. And at the same time, that invitation to the school newspaper Somebody had said that first week at the school newspaper, if anybody would write, like to write the football games for the city newspaper, you know, go see Mr. Kinney at the South Pasadena Review. And so wow, I was published in the city paper before our school paper even came out. And so... What a chain of events. The, yeah, exactly. And, and it's just... It wasn't any planning on my part. It was encouragement from, from you know, teachers, journalism advisors saying that, that you know, just start. You, you can do this. 
And I had always read the Star News as a kid, and that was the. It was just. A, it was wow. something I just kind of fell into. And here, here's the amazing thing. My grandmother was a hairdresser for the longest time in the city, and she had a client whose husband was the publisher of the newspaper, Erickson, Tog Erickson. And Tog Erickson goes to a ball game in 1974, gets the press notes, takes them home, and is going to throw them away. And his wife says, my hairdresser, Louise, uh, her grandson really likes baseball. Can we give these to him? So my grandmother gives me these press notes in church of all place, saying, Mrs. Erickson <laughs> thought you might like this, right? It was like Dillinger being handed his first gun in terms of, what is this? Look at this letterhead. These stats? I, I mean, I still have those press notes because I'm like, I didn't even know that this existed. And so here's where the story gets crazy. It was for July 21, 1974, and I, I had all of these notes. I would call the this little phone number. It said the Dodger Audio News, and it was a guy by the name of Jim Pels. This is the Dodger Audio Newswire for September the 4th, 2021. And, and basically, it was a service for radio. And so let's say uh, Steve Garvey talking about playing the Braves in cue. I didn't even know what that meant, but I guess for radio, in cue and out cue. I feel good, uh, out cue. Um, uh, looking forward to next year. Time, 28 seconds, 2-8. And basically, it would be an interview. And so every single day at 4 o'clock, I would call and listen. And basically, I was learning what was going to be in the next day's newspaper. Yeah, you're getting and the I'm junk. Not, and I'm nine years old. And that, But to me, this is just normal. So I don't know how to explain that. And I also don't know how to explain 40 years later when Billie Jean King is introduced as one of our owners. And later they said, could you interview her in front of the employees? I'd be happy to. And so uh, she was talking about her brother because I was interested in what her brother was doing when he played, when she played Bobby Riggs in the Battle of the Century. I said, your brother had a day game that day against the Reds, and so I wonder where was he when you're playing Bobby Riggs? And she had a big smile on her face, and she said, well, he bet a lot of people on his sister, and he went home to his apartment, got a pizza, was put it on his chest and was sitting there watching the TV, having a good old time. <laughs> and, and that story was fascinating, but what she didn't know uh, was Randy Moffat, her brother, made like 533 relief appearances, but he made 534 career appearances, which means he made one start. She did not know that. I said, you know, your brother made one start. I didn't know that. I thought he never went more than, you know, two innings in a game. I said, you want to guess where he made the start? And I pointed out the window because we were in the stadium club. I said, he started his only game right here at Dodger Stadium. Now, here's the kicker. June 21, 1974, and that's the day that I had my press notes from Erickson. So something like that, when something like that happens, so many things of, of like that happen, it's like I don't know how to explain it. I, I just go with the flow because I've known for such a long time that I've not only been so fortunate, but these things, these these crazy things happen, and it, it's not necessarily planned, but I appreciate it because wow. that's the, it's just like connect the dots of this, 
of this baseball universe. That's the most wonderful thing. You never know what random piece of information, maybe that you learned 40 years ago, is suddenly going to pop up and suddenly it fits into a puzzle. Right. It, it means something now. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't just that little lost piece. Yeah. Wow. What, I mean, what, what was her reaction? She had no idea that he had started a game. She must have been stunned, though. I, yeah. And I said, "Here's the there's the lineup," and I later showed her that that the, the, the I mean, what are the odds oh. that as a nine year old I'm going to get the handout of the stat sheet? The, and the, you the, kept it. And I kept. Well, of course it, I kept it. But it didn't it. get lost right. nope. in, in life. Nope, nope, because that was one of those 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 key things. And I call and and then the funny, but then the humor comes in because I meet Jim Pels, who did the audio news line, and and he said, "Oh." You're the one that called. <laughs> <laughs> you kept my career going. Yeah, so that's the that's that's just. But but people say, what's up with you know? Okay, how so, do you know all this stuff? And it's just naturally was interesting to me. So what are mom and what is mom and dad thinking though that their little young year old Mark is sitting in the kitchen at four o'clock and he's dialing up this weird random number and he's listening to like recordings? Are they thinking? Is, is he okay? No, my father, he passed away at a young age in, in, in 1991. He had a heart attack, age 51, on his, on his birthday in 91, New Year's Day. And so, sadly, in my mind, I thought, okay, that was the third quarter of Washington, Michigan, you know, as far as the, <laughs> far as the Rose Bowl. And so, um, <laughs> but he, the, the nice thing was, he, he was a counselor for kids that had either substance problems or... Um, you know, he counseled youth. He counseled okay. a lot of people. But he, he told me before he passed, he said, you know, I never had to worry about you because you were always so interested in that baseball. I, you know, so many kids always wandered around as far as what they wanted to do, as far as what they were interested in, or just, just trying to get some sort of spark. And for some reason, I always had that interest. So he never worried about me. And my mother was the same. My mother was the one that would always encourage. She would always be listening on the radio and say, hey, did you hear this? Hey, did you hear that? Just a little note. Or I heard so-and-so is going to be on TV tonight or something like that you might be interested in. My favorite story about my mother at the ballpark was that very first year, 1974. Now, here's one of those things where... I can't explain everything that's about to happen, but I'm in Little League my second year. On a Monday night, we have a game, but there's a problem. The Dodgers and Braves are going to play nationally televised game because Hank Aaron has tied the record, and he might set the home run record that night. Right. And I said, boy, I'd sure love to stay home and watch it. And, and my mom was a great sort of wise person, not really. She's the nicest person I ever met. She's still living. She's 85. But she wouldn't really drop the hammer on you, but she would sort of give her wisdom and say, well, you are part of a team. <sighs> okay, I know what you mean by that. And I said, but they have a better chance with eight, you know, that type of thing. Because I already knew then, you know, the... the you know, that was it. When you're washed up at seven, you, you know, you got good perspective. So I'm eight, and I'm not going to be able to see the game. So we're there at the Royal Seiko in South Pasadena, and I'm in left field, and I told my mom, because it's about the second or third inning, can I take the radio out with me to left field? And in her wisdom, she said, well, I don't see any other players with radios. <laughs> Okay, I get well, it. I, okay, I get it. I'm not supposed to have that out there. So I'm in left field. 
And this is something I'll never forget. We get the first two outs of the inning, and then suddenly a walk, a single. I mean, suddenly the other team is rallying, and a two-out rally, that's what's killing me. So by the time whatever happens ends, I run off the field, and there's my mother holding the radio up high, and all I hear is cheering. And she said, he just hit it. And so... And, and you hear, you know, Vin Scully's so amazing. Right. You know, you hear Vin Scully's call, and I missed it. Okay, now flash forward, I'm now working for the Dodgers. I had joined the Dodgers in 94, and this is probably around 2007. They had asked that week, for Jackie Robinson Day, would you be willing to take somebody onto the field? And be happy to. A couple days later, they said, um, you're going to take Hank Aaron onto the field. Okay. <laughs> Normal. We flash to the elevator scene. It's just him and me. <gasps> oh, boy. And no small talk. I said, I didn't see it live. My mother made me go to my <laughs> Little League game. I was a lousy player. I, and he's cracking up. And he's You're throwing <laughs> your poor mother under the bus. <laughs> exactly. Because I told him. I, you know, I said, you and Jimmy Wynn were my favorite players. But I didn't see it. I didn't even say 715. I said it. I didn't, I, didn't say, I didn't see it live because I had to go to my Little League game. And, and, exactly what you meant to. And, and Hank Aaron's, I didn't want a picture, no autograph, because as an escort, you're not supposed to do that. I just knew we were going to have this moment. And he smiled and he said, well, your mother was right. You're part of a team. Okay. Flash forward the next day and I see my mother and I tell her what had transpired. And she said, how did I know you were going to tell me to Hank Aaron? <laughs> mother with the great line. Now here's where it gets crazy. Hank Aaron passes away this year. And in this world of the pandemic and Zoom, I get a call from the local news. Can you go on in 20 minutes and talk about it? Absolutely. Grab the sport coat, fire up the computer. And they asked about Hank Aaron's career and everything like that. And, but then they had time to fill. And they said, do you have anything else you'd like to talk about? And I talked about what the story that I just gave you. And, and it was a very funny story. And it was very nice and very poignant and everything like that. And I called my sister. And I said, because my, my mother last year during the pandemic went to go live with my sister just for safety and everything mm -hmm. like that. And I said, tell mother I told the Hank Aaron story. <laughs> she said she saw it. And here's the crazy thing. She said she's usually not up this early. And she usually never watches that news. And she just happened to sit there, watch her son tell this story from Little League on the news, eulogizing Hank Aaron. So it's just another one of those things where it's like all these crazy dominoes falling into place. But it's just it, that's the key. It's the story. It's the it, it made for a better if I stay at home and watch the game. Okay, everybody else did that, but somehow that turned that into an amazing, uh, an, a, an amazing story. And and I don't try to figure it out. I I just no, just, you just notch it up to another. Um, it, it's kind of like I'm I'm watching my life as a movie, and I'm just sort of playing this character because um, these things that these things that happen I can't explain. Yeah, it's perfect the way it worked out. It's perfect that she made you go and do the team thing. And it's perfect that, you know, all those little scenarios worked out. You're in an elevator. He, the poor man passes away. There's a connection with your mother. Watches. That's just perfect. I got to tell you one more. Now, 
I was able to skip school only once in, in junior high, and that's only because I knew that I read in the paper that the Red Sox-Yankee one-game playoff in 78 was not going to be on the radio. So long story short... Why? Because locally, it, oh, wasn't, it wasn't planned. Right. Yeah. You're, you're not going to have a game from Boston yeah, you're uh, not. You're on, right. on, on local L.A. radio. And so um, I had to figure out where the nurse's office was. I had to figure out what was going to be wrong with me. <laughs> I had to make sure that I was home by 1030 in case there was a pregame show because it started at 11 o'clock on NBC. And so I was able to watch that. And that turned out to be the Bucky Dent game. Now, flash forward to 1980, same scenario. The Dodgers and the Astros are having this playoff. I'm in high school now, and I'm on a team. I'm not playing water polo, and I know that it's not proper for me to miss practice. Right. I know that as a you know growing up adolescent, that that's not going to work. Here's the amazing thing. I get a summons to the library at 10 minutes to 1, and the librarian is setting up two chairs in front of a television, and says, I thought you'd like to watch the game. Okay? Mary Ida Fair was the librarian, and I couldn't believe it. I'd been to the game before. Very exciting. Ron Say hits the homer off Lacordia. They sweep the Astros that weekend, but I know I can't go to that one-game playoff. I'm thinking, okay, transistor radio in the sweatshirt type thing. The librarian sets up a chair for me to watch it. Dodgers lose, 7-1. to one. Astros had rallied, you know, in the first couple innings, so I knew it wasn't going to be it. But that moment was just so special because she had seen in the school paper that, you know, I was writing about sports and everything like that, and she was interested. She knew that that game meant a lot to me. Maybe about 25, 30 years later, we had her memorial service in the exact same spot. And I told that story. And here's the amazing thing. For the next 30 years, we're friends. She was a volunteer at the Laguna Niguel Senior Citizen Complex where she lived. And she had a, there was a library there. She would take, intercept the books on sports that were, had been donated to the library <laughs> and mail them to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I mean... A great moment can occur away from the ballpark and, and, and if involving people. And, and that's such a special moment as far as somebody thinking of me like that. That was really cool. Yeah, I mean, for a, a librarian to go out of her way and see that this young boy has such a passion and love for the sport and this team, and for her to do that, I mean... They don't make people like that very no, often. No, and my water polo coach still laughs because um, I had the radio in the towel trick for a Saturday water polo game. <laughs> you it, must have gone through so many batteries. Oh, absolutely. But here's the thing, though. Was it though. a 9-volt? Yeah, it was a 9-volt. Of course. I, I had that son of a bitch. But, <laughs> but, I, but here's the thing, though. I'm rooting for a close game because I knew I would not be in a close game. It's a tournament game. 
And I suddenly had a problem because Nolan Ryan is pitching a no-hitter against the Dodgers. He's going for number five. And I got two things going on. I'm, I'm enjoying the eighth inning. This is great. It's a yeah. close game. There's no way I'm going into this water polo game. <laughs> but then we start to pull away, and I'm going, no, no, he's going to empty the bench. <laughs> I still remember. So I'm like, so finally he turns to me. He goes, okay, go in. I go, that's okay. And, and he looked at me like, what do you mean that's okay? I go, that's okay, but I couldn't say why. Yeah. And 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 I finally I turned to him and I said, Nolan Ryan's two outs away from a no hitter, and he yelled and he goes, get in there. <laughs> so <laughs> so I jump in the water. I remember telling the defender, you know, I really don't care because Nolan Ryan is about to pitch a fifth no hitter, and I'm missing it. And the guy looked at me like I was speaking a, a foreign language, like I he had no idea what I was talking about. And I've got the arms up, gonna do the water polo thing, and and we've joked about that since because the very first game that we were in Houston for the 2017 World Series, it was Game Three. And the announcer goes, okay, Astro fans, it's just, it's time for this date in Astro's history. That's right. It was September 26, 1981. No one runs going for the no. And I, and, I, and my nephew knew the story, and I'm immediately texting my water polo coach. And I said, hey, guess what? I get to see no one the only thing would have made that better if you'd have been in a trance and just jumped in the pool with the transistor yes, radio exactly. in your hand. Just, yeah. Okay, I'm in, coach. But, just, but, but the look on his face, get in there. Yeah. And 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 so the we've love had, of God, boy, yeah, I'm giving yeah. you a chance. We've had we've had fun with that, and then even even the and how you can personalize certain moments. I don't know if you remember, you know, the, the game three, of the 1977 playoffs. Back then, it's only best of five. And yes. Tommy's first year, they lose the first game, and he gets a motivational speaker for the second game, and it's Don Rickles. Now everybody thinks, okay, Tommy's this clown and everything like that. Tommy t had a lot of guts to bring out Rickles to try to settle the team down because you lose your home field advantage. You get Rickles to rip the team for 20 minutes, and suddenly everybody's loose, and they go out and play. Well, game three... Suddenly, it looks like the momentum's going to shift because they're down uh, five to three in the ninth inning. And that was the famous game where with two outs and two strikes, Vic Davalillo drops a drag bunt and gets on base. And then Manny Mota lofts a fly ball to left field. Greg Gulzinski thought in the eighth inning that he was out of the game for defense like he always was. Sure. And he's got his uniform off and they said, no, go back in there because Danny Ozark knew that Luzinski might be up as a as a batter in the uh, batting third in the bottom of the ninth. So even though they're up by two, he's not going to take Luzinski out for defense. And of course, what happens? The ball clanks off Luzinski's glove. And so Moda's got a double. And then Davey Lopes hits this grounder off of Schmidt's glove over to Boa at first base. They call him safe, and there's no instant replay back then. And then Bill Russell hits a ball through Gene Garber's legs. And so this classic, you know, comeback. Now, meanwhile, while all this is going on, I'm in seventh grade, and it's the <laughs> lunch break. And I got my radio to my head, and still it's beat the clock because suddenly the lunch bell rings, and I got to go to Mr. Bueller's class. And Mr. Bueller, 
you know, you're late to class. That's like a that's that's a tardy. That's right. paper pickup. All that stuff. I can't do the radio act in Mr. Bueller's class. Oh. So, so I know the Dodgers are up six to five, going to the bottom of the ninth. But I've got to go to Mr. Bueller's class. And so, for 10, 15 minutes, twenty minutes, finally. I got to go use the restroom. Okay, go use it. And then I run to the restroom, turn on the radio, <laughs> and hear on the post-game show that Lance Rotson held on and, and the 6-5 to five victory. So here's, here's the rest of the story. I didn't realize that Mr. Bueller was a big Dodger fan. I didn't realize that he loved the 63 Dodgers and Tommy Davis was his favorite player. <laughs> because when you see these teachers, you just see Mr. and right. part of the blackboard and everything like that. I had no idea as a seventh grader that maybe 20, 30 years later, Mr. Bueller would call and ask if he could buy World Series tickets <laughs> for, the, for the World Series, you know, ask, ask if he could buy through me. And I had no idea that one day Mr. Bueller would bring his class to the stadium in a school bus, take the nickel tour, but in the introduction, he would say, and looking at me, Mr. Langer was one of my students. I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> but that's the best part because the baseball is the glue that brings everybody together. It really is. We can't talk about religion. We can't talk about politics. We can't talk about the economy. And that's, that's in any time period. Sure. But Good here's, or bad. But here's the great thing. We're recording this at a time that the Dodgers and Giants are tied in the National League West. We have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. We can cite the stats. We can cite history. But it's we have no idea what's going to happen. None. That's the fun part because everybody can talk about their memories. And just imagine now how much time do we waste talking about games from 40, 50, 60 years ago right. that we're still replaying? The what if? And I, one of my favorite moments, and I, and I know your Angels background, and I went to an Angels game about a month ago, and Dusty Baker went to the mound. As a, as a manager of the Astros, he went to the mound. And I'm sitting on the third deck in the front row. I'd, I'd gotten seats from friends. And suddenly, I get a flashback. And I'm thinking when Dusty went to the mound in 2002, to talk to Russ Ortiz in game six. And at that point, the Giants are up uh, three games to two, and it looks like they're going to close it out because they've got like a lead. And for some reason, and I asked Dusty this later, what were you thinking? He hands Russ Ortiz the ball as he's walking off, like it's some Lifetime Achievement Award, you know, like the Academy Awards. Here's, here's a little prize for you as we're just moments away from winning the championship. And, I, and I'm like, this is one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. Dusty, what are you doing? Dusty is a wonderful friend, and, and normally I would never ask a ball player, sure. what's going through your mind? But in that case, that was just like, are you kidding me? And he goes, I just felt like doing it. I just, he just felt in the moment. He, I just, it's the only time he ever did it. And the angels are like, what did he just do? And then Spezio hits the homer, and then... Lackey wins game seven, but in that moment, when I'm just at this random, it's a quiet Angels game in 2021, I, just him walking to the mound, and for some reason, boom, it clicks. And that's the beauty about this baseball, as far as we have all these collective memories, and we remember different games for different reasons, and... Why? Why should that still be in my mind? Why should that still be right, important? Still be there. Why? Why is that getting me fired up in terms of Dusty? 
why did you give Russ Ortiz the ball? You know, there's so many other things in the world that I probably should be concerned about. But in that moment, Dusty, what's going on? That's all you wanted to know. You tell me why. What's going on? And, but that's a fascinating thing to me. When you can get to these people and they tell you behind the scenes what's going on. Because Absolutely. when you stink in Little League, you never make judgments about players. You never know what's going through their mind. You just don't know because we're all on the sidelines. And that's the beauty when they can open up and say behind the scenes what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, let you know. How do you go from Mr. Bueller to CSUN? Well, the only reason I went to CSUN is because uh, one of my role models, when I was 10 years old, the first job that I ever identified with, um, this person was 24 years old, and he was named PR director of the Dodgers, and his name was Steve Brenner. And I was thinking, wow. And I, and I looked at the roster of Northridge alums, and two names stuck out. Um, there was uh, Dick Enberg, right. who, who had been a teacher, San Fernando Valley State, and Steve Brenner. And, you know, I had been working... <laughs> Only you would be, like, going through that kind of a roster. Well, the, but here's the funny thing. I kept it simple because in my mind, I went to Pasadena City College for two years. I knew that I was going to get a degree just because you're not necessarily sure that you're going to be able to make it as a sports writer. You're not necessarily sure, but it's important to go to college. And so my mom had gone to PCC, you know, and, and in my mind, if Jackie Robinson goes to PCC, it's sure. good enough for me. It's good I enough mean, for Jackie. That's fine. And so I'm thinking, okay, Brenner went here, and, and, and I didn't necessarily know because I had the writing background, but I very kept it simple. I thought, well, Northridge has that reputation for journalism, but then at the same time, I'm working at Star News in 10th grade. I'm already getting this education right, as far as yeah. working with adults. And so basically, I had gone to Northridge to get the polish in terms of, to, to, but in my mind, I already had such an education working there. And then the irony was that one of my professors, Cynthia Rawich, her son, Josh Rawich, later worked for the Dodgers as an intern. And now 2021, Josh Rawich is the president of the Baseball Hall of Fame. <laughs> so just the same thing as far as all the connections. But the only reason I went to Northridge was it was local. I thought if Brenner went there, that's good enough for me. <laughs> I didn't. St I didn't overthink it, and I just thought, well, they have a good reputation. Uh, let's go to Northridge. Thank God he didn't go to West Virginia or something. Well, Brenner, <laughs> Brenner. I remember being in middle school, and I stopped Brenner on the escalator one time after a game because I saw that he had this big scorebook. And you I recognized him. Oh, I knew him. <laughs> I had the 1975 media guide when I was nine years old. So and I had the photos in there. Didn't have the photos, but it had the name. name. Okay. But in the yearbook, it had the pictures in the yearbook. And so I had those since 73, so I knew who all these people were. So I stopped Brenner on the escalator, and I said, where do you get those big scorebooks? And he actually stopped, and he, he wrote it out as far as the address and, and things like that. And um, it's just, you know, Brenner was very nice, and, and you know, People say be careful of meeting your heroes because right. you, you, know? you just you just never know. Sure, Brenner turned out to be just such a great PR person in terms of um, just behind the scenes when you could see what he went through. And just imagine a young PR person riding shotgun for the Tommy Lasorda show, which starts oh. you know 1977. You had to be young, you know, to be able to follow that. But then Scully was one of my role models. It wasn't that I wanted to be a broadcaster, but I enjoyed him so. And when I met him, just behind the scenes, it was just like, 
you weren't disappointed. And oh, then yeah. later in life, I would have fun with him saying, you know, I could have been a doctor or a lawyer, but I had to hang on your every word. Now look at me. And he's going, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so that was the fun part as far as, you know, him having a good sense of humor. But the people that I, I, I really looked at professionally, even, even teachers, they just turned out to be very, very solid. Um, my math teacher, Mr. Yukapina, he wrote... On the blackboard one day, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And if you find a job you love, you never have to work. And I never forgot that because it sort of gave you permission. He said, he talked about his two brothers. He said, one loves business and uh, one loves to sell cars. And they both love what they do, but they're different. What he didn't mention about himself, he was in the Navy and he was this genius mathematician that one day just decided he wanted to teach kids. And so he went from, uh, whether it was JPL or whatever right. fancy numbers crunching job he had, he decided he wanted to teach kids. And he enjoyed, he was Mr. U, and, and he taught kids. And, and who, who knew that, that years later I'd be covering his nephew as he's leading San Marino to the baseball championship? Who knew 25 years later I would be meeting his widow because she heard that I had uh, given the baccalaureate speech to graduates I think the less I think it was called the math lesson or something like that. And I told I told the story of what Mr. You had written and I basically told that to the kids. And that and that was the that was the thing. It was like giving permission to look, you may be the only person in your room, in your class, in your family that's interested in something, but you gotta listen to that voice. Because if you can listen to that voice, um, and if it somehow, even if it doesn't come true, you need to follow that voice because there's nothing yes. better than I get to go to work as opposed to I have to go to work. And that's the funny thing as far as the W word because I, I, I just got a, a gold pass um, last week from the Dodgers, 25 plus years service. So it's basically a lifetime pass to any major league game. Right. Now that doesn't mean I've been working for 25 plus years. <laughs> that means I've been employed by the Dodgers for all that time because in my mind, um, you know, I've just got to stay away from accounting because if they knew, they would just say, for, you know, one of my proudest moments was my boss, Lon Rosen, uh, said, you know, we're going to give you a percent raise this year, whatever the percent was. And I said, that's great. What am I making now? <laughs> and I got the Mona Lisa smile from him because I think he just rolls his eyes because um, I, I just do everything about that atmosphere, everything about the people. And now it's a different role because you want to encourage young people because you realize that they either may not have the confidence in themselves or see them in a position, you know, years right. from now. And it's like, listen to your voice. What do you want to do? There's no reason that you can't uh, do this. When I was giving that speech to the high school kids, I'm like, you know, you wanted to say, um, uh, you know, it's nice to see all you on a roll and, and people in the front row. Can I see the C students? You know, yeah. that type of thing. Yeah. Because it, it's like, look, I just did what I wanted to do. I, I went to one of my high school reunions and somebody said, um, somebody said, I work at a bank and I foreclose on people all day. He said, you do what, he said, you do what you want to do. And I remember 
it wasn't it was just something that I, I it wasn't something that I dramatically pursued in terms of against all odds I, I think the nice thing was the family wasn't saying no you have to do this you right. have to do that they looked at me and said um, and I think when Derek Hall made me the team historian in 2002 basically the message was we have no idea what you're talking about, but you know what you're talking about. Can you handle every miscellaneous phone call, every obscure request, any needle in a haystack going back to 1890? <laughs> and I said, well, actually, it goes back to 1883. And they're like, just, just, <laughs> okay, just, okay. just, just take the title. <laughs> just, just, just go do your thing. <laughs> and I've never looked back. Well, did you have your laser focus on a Dodger job? Or, or create a Dodger job, or was it, I'll take any sports job? Because you know, obviously your fondness is of, of the Dodgers, but had the Seattle Mariners called, would you have gone? I don't know, because I think the very important thing is, you know, be happy in your work. And then there were so many people that I met that were not happy with what they were doing. And I think I learned that as a, at a young age because I saw so many people doing what they loved. And you see people like Scully, and you see people like Brenner, and you see these people. And, and especially, I think, as a, as a 10th grader, and you realize the power of story and, and these people that could be in a job for 40, 50 years and love it, I think that was the important thing. I mean, it, it's good to have other jobs and try so many things. I think the other thing, too, is, is just attitude in terms of just... There are so many blessings everywhere, and it, it's your attitude in terms of my mother always had, uh, she was always the nicest person that I ever met. Uh, my grandfather was a people person in terms of just what, I heard the story when he retired from the county, even the elevator operators chipped in um, to give him a gift. And the point was, you can talk to anybody, everybody has a story. And, and that's the nice thing. You can talk, and I would like to think that whatever job I had, I would be able to get along with any coworker and just try to enjoy the environment right. because if you're going to be around people all day in a job, it really helps to, to like them and it really helps to know their story and not necessarily like them, but respect who they are, respect where they came from. And, and it's nice when people, when you can hopefully have that feeling that people either like to be around you or they look forward to seeing you. And Lasorda would always have these great wisdoms as far as um, things about complaining. You know, why complain? Because half the people don't care and the other half are happy that you have those problems. <laughs> you know, he was a great sage. And, and that's the important thing. Um, I just try to, I'm just very lucky and you can look at song lyrics, you know, as far as young at heart or anything like that. Um, and you, you look in those, those lyrics as far as Dick Van Dyke, as far as um, put on a happy face. Yeah, yeah. Smiling can work like magic. Put on a happy face. You know, take off the gloomy yeah. mask of tragedy. But if you analyze it, it's absolutely true. It it's, absolutely it, it's actually is. life advice. It's a fun little song. But yeah, young at heart. It, it's uh, 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 for as rich as you are, it's much better by far to be young at heart. You can go to extremes with impossible schemes. You can laugh when your dreams fall apart at the seams, and life gets more exciting with each passing day. And I wish I had a better voice to tell this you know, to do the lyrics. But 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 that's the. That, I would have brought the band if I knew we thank were. You, gonna... Thank you, thank um, you. But that's that. That's I. I somehow I picked up on that stuff. As far as having a having a positive attitude, it's so true. Everybody loves to be around people that are happy, but the the gloomy guy can bring the whole.
whole room down. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, for some reason, I was just around people that were very positive, and I was around and people supportive, and, very and supportive, supportive of and, you, and not necessarily supportive. Tolerant, rolling their eyes, going, "Oh my God, a hundred thousand trading cards." Okay, he seems, you know, if if only he loved his schoolwork as much, but um, but. Nobody ever said you can't do that, and that and that was the funny thing. The only person that ever said they, that I couldn't do it was a typing teacher in middle school named Reiko Ikonda, and she said you can't make a career in baseball. And I think what she meant was it's good to have you know be well rounded and everything like that. And the great thing is I still know Mrs. Ikonda, <laughs> and one time I saw her at Costco, and I said hey maybe you'd like to come to a game. And so um, this was going to be the big moment. And so like hey, many tickets as you want. Mrs. Zikanda, which probably meant we were in fourth place because whenever that happens, it's like, pay for the house, go ahead. Yeah, anybody. And I think she had about 20, I put maybe 15, 20 members on the, on the, on the club level. And, um, she's, and so finally we had that moment. I go, well, and, and she goes, how did I know you could do it? <laughs> and then maybe 10 years later, I saw, I, we were in little Tokyo and I was speaking in an event and I told the kids and all this and that. And I said, you know, only one teacher ever said, you know, but she pushed good typing skills. And I said, and that teacher's here today. Stand up. And so we've had, we've had fun with it. And one of the neat, neat photos was when I had my World Series ring and the neat look on her face when she was posing with it and her daughter was posing with it and you know we had gone we, it was long past that I told you so type thing right. because she really had her good interest at heart as far as you really you know want to be well rounded um, but even in one of the books I did in the in the in the acknowledgements I thanked so many people and I said and Ray Kelly Conda who doubted a career in baseball but pushed good typing skills you know we've we've had we've had fun with it but um, nobody really ever said you can't do that and, th and that was the nice thing because even the, the most important thing was the editors um, as far as you know you're gonna learn you're gonna you know just keep plugging away one thing I learned was when you're writing a story it doesn't matter what the audience is. It doesn't matter what the subject is. If I was going to write a story about a little leaguer, it would be the same way as if I went out talking about Clayton Kershaw, Game 7 of the World Series with a million people reading it. Right. Because that's just the way you do it. And um, that's very important in terms of that craft. And I still remember Steve Hunt, who was a sports writer at the Star News. He said, you know, it took a couple years before I liked anything that I ever wrote. And my eyes really open because I'm like, when you see just it in byline and print and newsprint, you think, well, this guy's a natural. So when somebody behind the scenes can, can actually share doubt that they had about their own lives or their own career, you're like, you, then it's very important for you to try to pass it along uh, to kids and, and encourage them and say, look, just like a ball game, there's another day. Just keep, keep plugging away. If this is important to you, then it's important. Yeah. How, how did you then find that Dodger job? Where are you, where are you sitting in your, your career in the newspaper going, I, I think there's going to be an opening? Well, there was an opening in 1990 at the end of the season, and I interviewed for it. And right. it was to be an assistant in the broadcasting and publications department. And I interviewed for it, and I finished second. Now, was that department pretty big at the time or small? Small. It right. was small, very small front office. I had taken over the Dodger beat in 1989. And so... In, the, I, in what paper? Pasadena Star okay, News. Okay, so... I'm the Dodger beat writer. After the 1990 season, I hear there's going to be an opening. And the funny thing was that Matt McHale, who had been the Dodger beat writer for Pasadena, 
he was terrible as far as hitting deadlines for freelance stories. So he'd have me do them. And <laughs> I'm not even on the beat and I'm writing for the Dodger magazine or I'm writing for Big Boy Review because he's like, I got to write. Can you do this? And, you know, the editor at the time, like, well, he's not, not really on the beat, but OK, it is on time. So, you know, we'll take his story. So I was I was writing for that, even though I wasn't on the beat. So at the end of the 1990 season, I interview with a guy named Brent Shire and Tommy Hawkins, who was the vice president oh, of communications. Tommy, yeah. And I finished second. Okay, fine. I go back to covering the team, 1991, 1992, 1993, and there's an opening in the same department after 1993. Now, do you hear this word of mouth? Just in Yeah, the just word of mouth. Because okay. that, that, the person that had had the job, Sid Robinson, who's now a professor at Cal Poly Pomona, um, he was going to go back to working at the fair. So I'm interviewing with Tommy Hawkins, and Tommy had this sort of blustery tone of voice, and he says, we had a guy that we hired that we thought he wanted to be here forever and after X amount of years, he's not, you know, he's, how do we know that that wouldn't happen to you? And I don't know what possessed me, but what came out of my mouth we would both laugh at for the next 20 years. I said, well, if you'd hired me in the first place, we wouldn't have this problem. <laughs> and, and he laughed. And we just, and, and he said in that moment, that's Boy, what he that's did. Brash. He said, but it wasn't brash. What, 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 it just came out of my mouth. Right. I wasn't. I would never be brash in a in a interview setting. Right. And right. I knew Tommy because I'd gotten his autograph as a little kid by right. the Dodger door. <laughs> you know, when he's doing the talk radio. You know, I. But it's got a bold own, move to say. But, but it's it was, honest. But 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 we had a good sense of humor together. As yeah. far as you know, we had a good good back and yeah. forth. And, and it just popped out of my mouth. And he laughed. And he said in that moment, and then 20 years later, I said, you know, Tommy, I give you full credit for my Dodger career. I tell everybody, <laughs> you're the one that hired me. Tommy's still got the great sense of humor, right? He goes, and he's the former Laker basketball player. He goes, not every shot goes in the basket. <laughs> so he, it was a wonderful sense of humor that we had. I remember when he had his uh, poetry book. It was this hardcover poetry book that came out. And I said, Tommy, I am so, so enjoying your poetry book. It, it is just amazing. I, I love it so much. And he's got that look on his face. Okay. All right. Let's have it. What I said, you know. Normally, a coaster only holds one drink, but I can put four drinks on your plug. <laughs> so we had a good, that was, the that was the fun thing. But Tommy taught me a great lesson. 1997, we blow the pennant race against the Giants, and, and we'd gone up there, we were going to get swept, and there's no way we're going to make the playoffs. But yet, we still have to sell playoff tickets. And I still remember this thing of him on a, on a soapbox, maybe 10 people. And somebody had taken a picture of it from behind, and it just, you know, it was just such a small crowd. And he said, it doesn't matter what the crowd is, because you still have to deliver the message. And I always remembered that as far as it doesn't matter what form that you're in. If you have the lectern, the microphone, you know, as far as a communicator, and that was so very important in terms of... Um, just you, you learn little bits and pieces from people, and it's the same with Scully, it's the same with Brenner. Um, but we really had a good back and forth. But that was the moment I said, Well, if you'd hired me in the first place, we wouldn't have this problem. And I and I was not being flippant, right. it just popped out of my mouth, right? Yeah, you'd be three years into this career instead of yeah, 10 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. What were those early jobs like for you? Because it's it's 
pre-social media by 20 some odd years. Um, I don't, you know, the Dodgers weren't on TV every day. I mean, it was, it's a very different time. What was it like early in that career? It's the end of the O'Malley era. So ni- January of 1994, uh, just had the Northridge earthquake. Oh, right. And it's interesting because the strike occurs later as far as the play, you know, the, the work stoppage. Mm-hmm. And so the World Series gets canceled. From, so for a few months, it's great, but you've got the storm clouds. And then suddenly, you know, I joined this club and suddenly there's this work stoppage. Now, historically, it's great because you've not seen this behind the scenes before and you're seeing how things are working. And that's the tough thing because sometimes you see something historically that's not good, but yet, you know, in the place of history, whether it's uh, the bankruptcy under the McCourts, whether it's something going on that necessarily isn't a good thing, but you're still seeing it up close. You've got the ringside seat. And so, but back then, there's no internet. There's, uh, you know, no smartphones. And so we're still doing the publications with four color changes and going down to the graphics place in Pasadena and going, looking over the shoulder of the graphic designer who's making the changes on the computer. Um, So we would put together the publications as far as the yearbook, the magazine, uh, help publicity with the media guide, and the line drives, but back then it was more of the printed form. And the historian part doesn't really come along until uh, 2002. Right. Uh, but the ownership change, I think that was very important because suddenly there was a need for institutional history because you're not necessarily going to need a team historian if the O'Malley's are in charge because they take over in 1950 and for 48 years they're in charge. They don't need somebody to be their team historian because they, they are, are the historians. Right. But then suddenly Fox comes along and then the McCourts come along and then Guggenheim comes along. And so this franchise that hadn't changed hands in the longest time, um, it's very important. And I don't say this because of what I do. It's very important in general. Former player calls. Somebody needs to know who that player is. Uh, You need to know what's happened in the past because the Dodgers have this record, this highest cumulative attendance since 1901. Um, It means so much to so many generations of people. And so my job as team historian, I know right off the bat, it's not about me. Um, Yes, you can possibly quiz me and I'll do well on a quiz, but that's not the point. Yeah, right. The the point is to be able to preserve the history. The point is to be able to... uh, uh, no, ahead of time. Yes, this is the 40th anniversary of Fernando Mania. Uh, it's important to know when he made his debut, the details of the eight consecutive victories in 1981. When we have a 1981 reunion, it's important to know. Uh, it's just very, it, it, you can't let that history go by the wayside. Um, John Suhu is in the same position because he's been our team photographer the longest tenured. So photographically, he does what I do in terms of the history. But the thing that's more important with John, the great thing about John is John's photographs transcend language. Oh, and yes. They, and, they, and it's perfect medium for the internet. And he, I, can, I can try to give my interpretation historically, but the picture speaking a thousand words that to me is so much more important to have a historian behind the scenes it's no different than having a white house photographer and to see everything that goes on and to have that very perspective because we can still go back and we can talk about old pennant races we can dig out the statistics and things like that but we can't go back and take the photos and so that's why it's so important to have somebody embedded with the team and john's relationship 
he's a walking historian. He's a, he's, in his mind, he's an artist. In his mind, he's trying to tell the story of the moment. But as the years go by, mm -hmm. he becomes the historian, even though he may not have, uh, he may not know, and he laughs at me when all of a sudden I'll throw out some random bit of knowledge as far as, <laughs> what about that four home run game? What, 91806, you know, that type of thing. Right. I can do that, but he's the one that has the images. And so I think it's a good, I think it's a good pairing because um, you can always go back and try to get the caption, uh, but you can't go back and get the photo. And right. so, so John is just as, John is also the team historian. Uh, he doesn't have that title, um, but he has that portfolio as far as all the wonderful images uh, that we've been able to enjoy over the years. The same as, as Rich Key, the same as Barney Stein, the same as any other uh, team photographer behind the scenes that had the presence of mind. Hey, this is important to take this picture in this moment. Right, right. When did you feel your job was changing and when Hall came to you and said, okay, I think we need a historian? Well, I remember when Mr. McCourt came along and he was asking questions, and same with Mrs. McCourt. And we had done a program, M Mrs. McCourt and I had done, um, and, and the funny thing is, I want to say this about the McCourts, it didn't end well for them as far as there was a lot of controversy and it got away right. from them. Both of them were very interested in Dodger history. They may not have known it, but they know that they knew it was very important. And she cracked up because we did a program once, and I was answering all these questions at the podium, and she, and her assistant said, you know, you're part of the team now. And I go, what do you mean? She wants you as a security blanket because <laughs> you can answer anything. And, sure. And okay, that's I'm happy to make her comfortable. And in Frank's case, he came back from. His first year, he takes over in 2004. They win the division. And around January 2005, he came back from vacation and he showed me a baseball. And he said, I got this during the break. And they said, it's a Brooklyn Dodger ball. And it's, you know, 54, 55, 56, something like that. They weren't sure. Uh, maybe you could look at it, study it, and get back to me as far as, you know, when it was. And I looked at it and I said, it's 55. He goes, how would you know that? And I said, we well, have Frank Callert on the ball, and he was only with the team the last six weeks in 1955. In fact, when Jackie Robinson steals home in game one of the Yankee Stadium, there's number 12, and everybody wonders who's number 12. It's Frank Kellert. And then the funny thing about Frank Kellert, that he goes to the Cubs the next spring, and they said, was he safe or out? He looked out to me, but it didn't matter because the umpire <laughs> called him safe, and Yogi Berra forever thought that he was out as well. But... He said, is that significant? And I said, well, the two most important days in Dodger history, Jackie Robinson, Major League debut, April 15, 1947, first African-American of the 20th century. Uh, you know, that, that goes on without saying. But then October 4, 1955, just imagine the Brooklyn Dodgers. They'd been in the World Series so many times. Oh. 1916, 1920, 41, 47, 49, 52, 53. The only time they ever win it, 1955. So that's the golden moment for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And then they never get old in the eyes of the fans because they're gone a couple of years later. Right. After 57, they're gone. So that moment, that golden moment when they win the championship, that was so special. Right. Forever they're frozen. 
flash ahead four, four months later, and we have a 1955 reunion in the stadium club. We have the 13 surviving members of that Brooklyn Dodger team, and Frank gets up and he welcomes everybody. He tells the story about the baseball that he had gotten. He tells the story that when he talked to me about that baseball, in that moment, he decided to have a 50th anniversary reunion because he realized that that was that important. Frank McCord never told me that story. He never, I didn't hear about it until either Matt McHale or Bill Plaschke, because I was doing something else in the stadium mm -hmm. club, so I wasn't hanging on every word. And they said, he just gave you credit for the reunion. I go, what do you mean? And he said, he told some story about a ball that he showed you, and you told him some story, and he decided to have a reunion. And I was like, wow. And, and you know, that's the funny thing. When people ask you, you know, is this significant? Should we do this? Why is this important? And there are many times, I remember when Mike Marshall passed away this summer, the relief pitcher, mm -hmm. and I uh, emailed the person on the scoreboard, and I said, you know, you never want to, try to give an order because that I don't have that place and, and you don't want to talk to people like that. But I said, and it's early enough, I said there really should be a moment of silence because a former Cy Young Award pitcher passes, even though maybe not a lot of people knew him because he didn't play for that Dodgers. It's kind of like that office. You, you win that award. You need, in my mind, you need to have that moment of silence. And so that's the important thing in terms of when something like that happens. In my mind, something else needs to happen. Suhu, the photographer, needs to be tipped off because you don't want to assume that he knows there's going to be. Right. So I got to tell, I've got to text Suhu and say, if there's a moment, of, there could be a moment of silence, this and that, because what's going to happen the next day? That photo needs to be emailed to the family so they know that he is not forgotten. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the other thing that we really haven't talked about as, as part of this that you don't realize that's going to happen, that you're going to write obituaries about people that you followed as a kid. You're going to conduct services sometimes for people that you knew as a kid right. or that you knew as an adult. And that's a very... It's a very interesting feeling because I remember Ron Fairley and I was eulogizing him in the stadium club and I found a picture of him, uh, 1961 circa December with construction and he's posing with some other players and what's in the background? The stadium club where his service is going to be, you know, X number of years later and this wow. is 61 and where his memorial service is, is going to be right there. So that's when it really gets to be heavy as far as, because you know in their lives, the, the time of their life is being a baseball player. And, and that's the most important thing, to give them the, the dignity of the service. Um, here's something that you can't plan. 73 is the first year I start to follow the, the, the trading cards. And I'm in the back, and, and it's a Sunday morning, and my mother, it still bugs me because my sister did not <laughs> like trading cards. And it's like, well, your sister has to have it too. I'm like, no, she doesn't because she, you know, I was just, right. you know, it's like, come on, I need all four packs. We don't need to go two and two. She doesn't even like this, but, you know. I'll give her the gum. Yeah, she's two years, but but to her credit, she was two years younger, and, and I, I can only imagine what she had to go through because she says that, on opening day, I'd run around through the house going, it's opening day, and I would play the Helen Dell record. It's a beautiful day for a ball game. And on the other side, take me out to the ball game, this, this organ music. And she would just, I'm sure it was like a knitting needle through the oh. temple going, oh, my God, would you please stop? What's wrong with this child? Exactly. She's just going nuts. So 
Sunday morning, I wanted this Willie Davis trading card because there was a there was a, a family friends, and I liked it. It was this this horizontal shot, and I looked on the back of the trading card. You could barely see the stats because he played like almost twenty years, so you knew he was good. Right. I didn't know that much about him, but I go, oh, he must be the best player. I really want this card. So my sister holds it up. Of course, is this the card you wanted? So I end up making a deal. I get the card and everything like that. So I end up knowing Willie Davis as a as a. I end up knowing Willie Davis as an adult. He's on the speakers bureau. He's one of the chapters in my book, Game of My Life. And then I went out to Frankenstein's with my nephew because my nephew wanted. Uh, he wasn't into baseball, but he wanted to get um, some hobby stuff, and and you can get that stuff there. And Willie Davis is there. Hey, you know, he's signing autographs, and I thought, well, hey, Willie, nice to see you. Hey, Mark. Hey, this is my nephew, Mark. Hey, why don't you two take a picture? Okay. So we take a we take a picture. Willie Davis passes away about five years later, and. The family needs to get photos, and so we find some photos from the career. And I thought, well, we should show some community stuff too. So I gave him the shot of Willie Davis and my nephew, just because I thought it'd be nice to have a picture of a kid, and at least I know who the kid is, so I'm not doing anything right. without permission. So that that ends up in the program. So we're in the stadium club, and it's about maybe nine fifty nine, and about thirty seconds to go, and Willie Davis's daughter Kim suddenly turns to me and says, I can't do this. And, you know, the emotion got, sure. that I, I can't do this. And so there was the program. And so suddenly on 30 seconds notice, I'm going to suddenly conduct the oh. Willie Davis service in front is Mr. McCourt, there's Mr. O'Malley, there's Lou Johnson, there's Ron Say. I got no script, I got nothing. I've got, but suddenly I'm supposed to you know what do you do? Oh my Lord, Mark! When you when you speak to elementary school kids, and when Mrs. Madsen invites you to talk to her third grade class, that's the beginning of learning how to speak to an audience. And so that had been maybe 20 years ago, and a speech class at PCC and things like that. And so you learn that in the moment, just take your time, look to the middle. Look to the center, look to the right, because you want to welcome people. And this is the moment. This is the Willie Davis moment. This is not Mark doesn't have a script. What am I going to talk about? This is about Willie Davis. This isn't about anything else. And so the nice thing about having random stories in your head is I said, this is a, uh, our, we're here to talk about Willie Davis and we're here to celebrate his life. And, you know, so many people really know, and, and here's the part where I can draw from the baseball cards and the knowledge. And I said, you know, um, you can look at all the statistics. You can look at from, and, and, I'm, and so I'm rattling off that. Right. And I said, but what was nice to know was Willie's highlight in sports had nothing to do with baseball, and this is true. And I'm about to tell a story that he told me that nobody knew. And, I, and, and so, because I don't want to do the cliche, he was a great Dodger outfielder and uh -huh. things like that in the world. We all know that. I said his greatest moment was when he was with the Texas Rangers, but it wasn't baseball. And he's at the golf course, and he's on the putting green, and suddenly somebody said, aren't you Willie Davis? And he said he was. And the man said that he was a fan of his, and he thought it was a great thrill. 
because the person that he was speaking to was Ben Hogan, the golfer. And Willie Davis loved golf. In fact, George Lopez, when Willie Davis came back to the Dodgers as a speaker, George Lopez bought Willie Davis this beautiful custom-made uh, golf clubs, set of golf clubs because he was his favorite player as a kid. So Willie loved golf. And Willie was so shocked that, that one of his idols in golf went up to him on the putting green in a, at a Texas golf course and wow. said, you're Willie Davis. And he's saying, yeah, but you're Ben Hogan. <laughs> so I've got this. So while this is all going on and while I'm telling the story, I'm thinking of the trading card in the back seat with my sister. I'm thinking of all the times with Willie. I'm thinking of all the stories. But in this moment, I need to, I need to really capsulize what was important to Willie. Not what I remember, not what can be found on the internet. And that was that's really the cool thing when you can take that information and have this service and kind of kind of driving a boat or so you, you just right. wanna but but you just this is a person's life that you know you're now you're now in charge of eulogizing. And you can even think in the back of your mind this happened on a Monday. And on Friday, they're trying to think of the song, and they wanted to play a beautiful Marvin Gaye song. The only problem was that they got the title wrong, and so they corrected it at the last minute, and so they played this song, What's Going On? But for the, but the three previous days, they had planned to play Let's Get It On. <laughs> Because they had the wrong song. <laughs> Jesus. And this is all going through my head thinking, thank goodness we got that song. Thank goodness we got that song right. And then I'm thinking of the trading card and I'm thinking, and it's all this, it's just like not wanting to watch the playoff game because so much is going through my mind. I've got this all going through my head, yet I'm having to speak quietly and softly and trying to keep my brain under control. <laughs> Because this is a memorial service for Willie Davis, and whatever random things are in your head, you need to present it well to the people in the stand. And, and so that's the, right. You, you got that out of body experience. So that's that's the funny part too. Because when you say, you know, what is it like as a historian when you have impact and things like that? Sometimes you'll have impact as far as what should we do? How should we honor these people? Um, sometimes they'll say. Sometimes they'll even say. Hey, can you write? Can you write up a paragraph on this? Yeah, sure, but it's going to go on a statue. It's not something that's on a three by five card that right, yeah. someone's going to read. That happens too. Hey, it's in granite. Yes, they're, or they're going to give a plaque to somebody. Right. Yeah. Can you write up something? And I'm, I'm, and that's the funny part because it's the same thing. The rule doesn't change whether you're writing it on an index card or it's going to be in granite. But they'll go. Yeah. Can you can you write? Can you can you write the base of the statue? And you're just going. Did you hear what you just said? <laughs> yeah. It's like, hold on a minute. Yeah. 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 How has digital changed your life? Digital has changed my life in terms of um, many times if you can't watch a game, you can watch the ESPN GameCast and kind of watch it that way. And I, I just learned a new trick, uh, having seen Van Gogh and, <laughs> and having this dramatic music. Um, I tried listening to Edith Piaf, the, the, the this marvelous da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. I find that in the ninth inning, when you've got this opera music... <laughs> 
going on. It's kind of a hedge because if we blow it, I can still have this wonderful movement. Yeah, exactly. It's going it's, on. It, exactly. But but it's it's amazing because you know opera. It's amazing. Opera does flow very well with sports if you intertwine them real well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's so in the, beautiful in the moment. And and I think the thing that helps me as a team historian, so many people get caught up in the season, in the game and right. everything like that. And the nice thing is I've got 130 years in the rearview mirror. I can be in my own little world that nobody else seems to pay as much attention to. And so I already know in my head, look, the pennant race isn't, we're not going to know for three or four weeks what's going to happen. We're not going to know if we repeat. We're, I can tell you historically, we've won six previous championships. Three times we were blown out, 13, 14, and 14 games. But the others... Uh, the other three were decided by one game. So you're either blown out or it's close. So I don't get hung up on that. But the digital part is so interesting because now everybody has instant opinion. Everybody right. has instant emotion. Uh, the other day when Max Scherzer got out after six innings, everybody thought it was maybe a management decision, and it turned out he had a hamstring. But everybody, no, and suddenly social media is exploding and everything like that. And so I still try to have the blinders on because just to, you know, I, I don't gotta know. It's got to be tough for you. Oh, no, not at all. No. No? Not hard you at all. You could just, like a racehorse, yep, yep. just put on those Absolutely. blinkers and just. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's wow. Sometimes we'll have a big game, and you say to yourself, look. There may come a point where there's a one-game wild card October the 6th. And so in my mind, you say, okay, probably be, let's say we're the wild card mm -hmm. and we're 15 games better. Okay, fine. But then you start to think, okay, the Indians-Red Sox one-game playoff in 1948. You think about Yankees-Red Sox 1978. You think about Dodgers-Astros. And, and so you've seen these big events before and these ultimate games and everything like that. And so um, just how we talked about earlier, 100 years ago, the Giants were the world champions. And 101 years ago, the Dodgers were the National League champs. So this tends to repeat itself. It does. And, and so it doesn't, you know, that stuff doesn't necessarily drive me crazy. But in the playoffs somehow it kicks into gear because you'll get flashbacks and you'll be thinking of things that's happened in the past. And so it's kind of like, I, I think if I was a photographer and John Sue who's told me that in those big moments, he doesn't get nervous at all because it's his moment to take the picture, not to think, not to cheer, not to root. And I think it's the same way it was in Little League because you know if you're rooting for your nephew, you're going to go crazy. But if you're taking pictures, you you have a job to do, so you block that out. Yeah. So I think if I was a photographer, I don't, you know, I think too much idle time, you know, you, really the emotion can creep into it. But if I was a photographer and on assignment, I would be like, look, if I would be thinking ahead, if this happens, I need to have this shot. Yeah, you have to know it, where the dominoes it, are going to go. It, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, you know, there would be circumstances, but but emotionally, um, emotionally, I really, I really, I feel the emotion when um, a Fernando will give a wave on the anniversary of something. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, this is a hard story to tell. Um, the last week of Vin Scully and, and and something you can't plan. He was he was taking photos with people with employees and it was like a conga line, you know, that whole oh, year. Oh God, yes. But that last that last week I knew at some point there would be this moment where we'd have to, you know, sort of acknowledge this is it. And, you know, even though since 
I've still talking to, you know, spoken to him and things like that. In that moment, though, you're like, wow, this is really happening. He's winding it down. And at some point, I'm just going to have to look at him. And and I thought, okay, I got to have some sort of sight gag. I've got to have something to distract from the moment because it's not going to very, it's not going to look good if I just fall down, grab his leg and say, don't go, don't go. You know, I, you know, I, I, I can't do that. Oh, man, you can't break down in front of Santa Claus exactly. and start crying. Exa- exactly. And I don't know how I'm going to react. So I thought, okay. His first awareness of baseball was when he was walking home in 1936, and it's the World Series. And it's the Yankees and the Giants are playing. He's passing the window of a Chinese laundry, and on butcher paper is the line score of, I believe it's game two, and the Yankees are winning 18-4. to And in that moment, he perceives the Giants as the underdog, even though they're the National League champs. He perceives them as the underdog. Okay. I thought, okay. 36 New York Giants. That's where it started. What can I do? What can I get from that game? How about a hat? What kind of hat did the Giants wear in 1936? You know, what logo, what style, right. that type thing. So I look it up, and it's blue. It's a blue hat with white writing. Now, if you're looking at black and white newspapers as a kid, you're not going to know that your fa- your supposed favorite team is wearing blue. Right. Perfect. I've got my in. So I go in there, and let's take a picture together. Oh, okay. You know, and he's, you know, Sue so who's taking the shot. And he goes, what's this? And I said, well, your favorite team, 1936 Giants. Why is it blue? And I explained to him that for a couple of years in that time period, he they wore blue. And he did not know that. And he goes, really? And I said, yeah. And so he takes the hat and he turns to his wife. And he says, Sandy, let's put this in a safe place. <laughs> now, what has just happened? Not only have I told my hero that his favorite team wore blue, my hero has just stolen my cap. <laughs> I didn't give him the cap. <laughs> yes. this, is, this is like the president of Russia showing off his Super Bowl ring. And suddenly, you know, Putin's like, hey, this is great. Thanks. Yeah. So, all right. Now we've totally changed gears. I'm worried that I'm, I'm going to cry. And suddenly I'm laughing because I've got this wonderful story in my head. Scully stole my cap. How cool is this? <laughs> I can always go on the Internet and get another cap because I'm going to go to San Francisco later, you know, you know, in a week. But how funny is this now? He steals the cap. You just out of Vince Scully's a klepto. Exactly. <laughs> the Hall of Fame thief. Unbelievable. So I'm so suddenly the emotion turns and I'm going, how cool is this? He stole it. So, so I go to San Francisco and Larry Harper, uh, who had a foundation, and he had worked with Scully on a on a, a, a book with artist Brett Benger, a first look at baseball. He has this good tidings foundation, and somebody donated the suite. And so Larry Harper is in the same boat as me. He's just a wreck because his hero's gonna. So you know he's just gonna sit there, you know, all can you know, right next to a radio and just be depressed the whole time. But he's got to be there. Right. You know, we all have to be there. I don't. You know. I don't like traveling that much, but there's no way I'm not going no. to San Francisco. You would have walked. This is, you know, this is the pilgrimage type thing. And so it's pregame. 
And all of a sudden, I get a text from John Suhu, and it's and it's showing Scully's desk in the in the press box at the San Francisco ballpark. What is on the desk next to the scorebook? The hat. No. I go. You got to be kidding me. I go. He brought it to remind him of home, right? Gets. Here's the crazy part. About the fourth inning, my phone starts to blow up. Turns out that uh, if we have a break, and Corey, Se- I think Corey Seager was the batter, and he decides that he's going to tell a story, and he says, you know. Back in the day, the Giants, and he tells the story of this cap. I remember that. Larry Bear, the Giants president, is in the booth. And he gets done with the story, and he says, I'll bet even the Giants president, Larry Bear, didn't know that. But Mark Langell knew that. Okay, what just happened? My favorite person in his broadcast calls me out giving me credit for a story that he never knew and also while displaying the hat that he stole so (laughs) we have the comical we have the comical storyline too you know he's he's showing off his stolen merchandise and but but telling this story and i'm like you got to be kidding me and i and i and i laugh i'm thinking you know, most people, when they look back at their life, don't know what their highlight was. And I knew as soon as he finished that story that the roller coaster car was, you know, all set oh, to go down. Because, yeah. and, and I'm like, and, and suddenly you go back and you're thinking, okay, you're eight years old. You're, you're deciding that you're going to try to be like Scully and borrow your grandfather's tape recorder. And in your little eight-year-old voice, you're going to... Suddenly talk like this, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's the seventh game of the World Series. Welcome, because the Dodgers lose in five. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna read. <laughs> I'm gonna have them win in seven. Jimmy Wynn's gonna be the hero. But I'm doing beer ads. <laughs> I'm doing play-by-play, and even you know somebody hits a pop-up. It's playable. <laughs> and where do I get that from? from and I and I said Olympia beer. Uh, make it make, if you're gonna have beer make it oh let's be a beer and so I had I've, I've got that recording right okay first time I was ever on the team charter it's July of 1989 because the star news flew on the team charter I go to use the restroom right I go back out Vinny's sitting there with a little light on in first class and he's got the granny glasses he's reading and he looks up and he goes Hiya, Mark. And I knew in that moment, suddenly, it was like I was going down this rabbit hole. Like, suddenly, I'm behind the scenes with that Hiya, Mark. And so, that moment, and then I'm thinking the couple times, you ever want to sit and watch watch me in the booth? Sure. So, I only did it a couple times, but I remember doing it during a pennant race. And it's like watching somebody with eight hats juggling because... He's looking at the scoreboard. He's looking at this. And, and I'm just, it's just like watching, you know, somebody behind the maestro. The, yeah, the maestro doing this. But I'm thinking of all the access that I've had over the years, all the stories that he's told me, all, all, of, the, all of the things that he's, he has said. And, it, it, you know, to lead up to that moment. And the, and the part that I left out was, oh, by the way, on the Vin Scully night at the stadium, they had asked, do you want to be inside the booth? And I'm standing next to his chair 
when he is giving that speech. And I'm looking down the row, and it's just like in the movie Pride of the Yankees, my favorite movie, by the way, where all the sports writers are teary-eyed. All these guys are just have, have tears in their eyes. because. Yeah. But Scully had told them in advance, look, if it gets a little heavy... I'm going to twirl the finger because the twirl the finger is the is the directing line to let's 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 wrap this up let's go quicker type thing. So in the middle of all of this, Vinny gives the little signal to his friends in the booth <laughs> as far as twirling the finger. So he they, and they've got all they've they've got the binoculars on them and they're not looking at the ceremony they're looking at his finger to see if he's going to do it and so he all of a sudden in the middle of the ceremony suddenly the finger starts to twirl and, he, and they're like little they're like little kids he's twirling the finger he's doing it he's doing it and i'm just thinking oh my gosh and so one of my favorite photos i took a picture i videotaped the ceremony his scorebook and the monitor is in front but for the only time, he is the story, and he is on the monitor next to his wife. And so I have a picture of his scorebook that he's not there. He's sitting there, but uh, he's not sitting there, but he is in front of the scorebook. I mean, he's in, he, the, the monitor is in front of his scorebook, and suddenly his face is on the screen because he is the story. So I've got that emotion. I've got these guys delighted because he's twirling the finger in his little secret code to them like right. you know, as an emotional break like you know you got 55,000 people and he's twirling his finger for five people in the press box because it's their little secret code probably just to break the tension in his mind yeah they're so excited but then he gets on the microphone and then I look every single one oh yeah, there wasn't a dry not eye. A, not a not a uh, not a dry eye, and so all of that stuff I'm thinking of, and so um, that's the amazing thing. And, and he called me about a month ago, and it was about eleven o'clock, and I said, uh, "At night? No, in the oh, morning. In the morning. In the morning. <laughs> in the morning." And he he, uh, it, it's funny. I, I should tell the story first. He's got a wonderful sense of humor, and you know, I didn't. I didn't know what to do when his wife passed away as far as I, I felt so bad, and I, but I just didn't want to call because I just didn't, you right. know, people grieve in different ways, and I thought, you know, he's a private person. When the time comes, okay. So I thought, what can I do? I, we've always had a good sense of humor. What can I do to make him laugh? And I had my World Series ring that I had just gotten, and I went to Costco to show somebody. And somebody said, oh, you're not at the game. Oh, I miss your sense of humor. And suddenly I'm like, okay, what would I... Wait a sec. Do you remember when Vince Scully lost his ring at Costco? Yes. Where did he lose it? In the meat department. Meat department, right? Yeah. He and, and he went home. It turned out it was in a bag of ribs. <laughs> but for a half hour, the world end, the world stopped because everybody, even if you lived in Vermont, you went outside to look for Vince Scully's <laughs> ring because it, suddenly this this worry oh my god he lost his ring i thought okay that's it so i put the ring in the meat section and took a picture and i and i held it it wasn't actually on the meat so uh anybody listening from costco <laughs> do not cancel the membership i love costco i did not touch the meat but i thought okay this is it visually and all i did was send an email that says trying to be like vin scully at costco <laughs> and i sent it this 
big overgrown, you know, hood ornament type yeah. World Series ring on some, that looked like it was on meat. And the next morning, at nine in the morning, I got the, the just a few magic words. Are you trying to rib me? <laughs> So that, I just love that Morse code. So uh, I only set that up as a background because he called maybe about, you know, a few times later he'd call. And the one time that he called, it was about 11 o'clock, 11.30 in the morning. And I said, oh, it's so nice to hear from you again this morning. And he said, oh, I don't remember a call I knew this morning. <laughs> I said, well, I don't want you to think less of me, but I was actually listening to your opening day broadcast from 50 years ago, <laughs> 1972 Dodgers and Reds. And you were trying to sell me Olympia beer because you said it was something about the water. And he laughed and he goes, it's always about the water. <laughs> and, he, and then he said, here's the thing, though. He said, and you know what? I would never think less than you. In fact, every time I talk to you, I think more of you. And I was thinking of Fred Sanford going, take me now. Take me now. <laughs> because, you know, it's it's it's. Those little those little moments like that, it, it's just so fun that we can still have the back and forth. He's 93 years old. He knows if he needs something, he can call. Um, but from that little record as an eight-year-old to high a mark on that first team flight to see behind the scenes, the stories... He steals my cap, you know. Right. <laughs> he takes the stolen cap to San Francisco and makes a wonderful, makes a wonderful memory out of it. Um, as I say, it's. I just look back and and there. I look back with such gratitude, um, but also such humor too, because you really have to have. If you really have a fun perspective, fun moments can come from anywhere. Oh yeah. And, and you just have to look for it. And as I say, those moments are just as if not more meaningful um yes a championship ring is nice and things like that when we won the championship in 2020 i was happy for the current players but for the me the most exciting championship was 1981 because that was the first one um that i had ever experienced i was too young for the other one because i was only six months old right yeah in 1965 and my family gets upset because um that's my idea of knowing my tracing my roots, uh, knowing the day I was born was opening day, the home <laughs> opener in 65, and that Claude Osteen was facing Warren Spahn. And one day, Ooh. Jimmy Lefebvre came back as, as the coach of, of Team China right before the 2008 Olympics. And he was talking about his first game at Dodger Stadium as a rookie. And he was so excited because he was going to face this old man, Warren Spahn, and he was going to get three or four hits off this guy. And he struck out three times. And, and I'm listening to the story, and I didn't have the heart to say, and that's the day I was born. <laughs> will will ba a baseball club ever see anybody like Vinny again? That oh, with the longevity? No, definitely not. Um, you know, you don't want to say never say never, but I think the technology changes because now, you know, look at the smartphone world. Everybody has such an attention span, and they want the information now. And it's such it's such a. Back in the day, Vinny did so much research, and people didn't necessarily have the internet to be able to dig and find out what Vinny could tell you back then. Right. He could do research, but you wouldn't necessarily be able to go, you know, sporting news online or find out these things. So he really did a lot of research, and he wanted to tell these stories. The thing that helped Vinny most of all, would you believe the invention of the transistor radio as far as it 
booming was 1958. And he just happened to be leaving the, the, the little Abbott's Field in Brooklyn where people had their stationary radios at home. Right. And he was going to go to this football stadium with over 90,000 fans. And suddenly portable radios had been invented. And you'd say, well, what if, what if there was no portable radio until maybe the mid-1960s? Would Vince Scully have been as popular? Because O'Malley was not going to televise Dodger games um, like he did in Brooklyn. Right. And so would Vinny had been as popular if it was just the stationary radio at home versus being able to take the game and listen to Vinny? And it's like what Lasorda said. Are you going to believe your eyes or are you going to believe what Vinny told you if you're at the game? Sure. It's amazing how much someone like Vince Scully um, touches people's lives. Like, I can remember my grandfather doing yard work, Dodgers games on, hearing Vinny. Going fishing with my grandfather, Dodger game, radio. Funny how you had to be quiet when we were fishing, but Vinny didn't have to be, right? Vinny never distracted the fish at the creek, but me skipping a rock or sneezing, and I was, stop it, boy, keep quiet. Vinny can tell a story, didn't matter. It was just, he has such a, a long, touching history with people that I don't know if we'll ever see that kind of person touch so many Dodger fans or fans in general. It doesn't matter. It could be a young 25-year-old coming up with whatever club like Vinny ever did. Well, don't forget, too, the mystique because if people would have the good fortune to meet Vinny, he knew what it meant to them. And so, in a way, it was kind of like a sort of because you step out of that house, you're Vin Scully, and there's a Vin Scully sighting. You know, he was so nice to people, and, and that was the important <laughs> yeah. thing in terms of... Um, and he'd hear, you know... He'd know if somebody told him a joke or a story, oh, oh, yeah. you know, or aren't you nice? You know, yeah. that's how, you know, he he knew that this was so important to somebody. I mean, he, he could always rise to the occasion. And the other person that, that strikes me like that is Fernando, because Fernando is, is a very private person. But you put him in a public situation. He knows what it means to people. Uh, he turns to on be the around light. people, Boom. and he knows he's got that ambassador role. And Vinny was always like that, um, off camera too, with people. It wasn't that he was the braggart. Vinny was smart. You never knew his political views. You never knew um, things like that. He was the guy that was the guy in the radio, and that would tell you all about his little his little puppet show, and he'd say, <laughs> "I've got to get ready. I've got to get my lines and everything like that." And and I knew the amount of research that he did. And he would end up using 1% of it. And it was the same thing in football. He hired Jack Faulkner of the Rams to teach him all about football. And he actually took this football course in terms of just learning everything that he could. If he wow. did tennis, he would take tennis lessons. So he would know what to do. And somebody asked him, look, you're going to be doing football and you're going to have John Madden as your color commentator. Why don't you just ask him the question? And he said, it's a lot easier to ask the question if you already know the answer. Mm -hmm. But that was the key. That was the genius of any. He only used 1% of his research for the broadcast. You'd see this mounds of stuff, and he always used it as a spice and not a crutch. And that, and that was the key. He was all ready for that third baseman. If he hit a home run, he knew that fourth grade dog spot. Or he, he was sitting on that story, but he would, he would never force it. Um, and then he could always see, uh, you know, a father walking along with two kids and say, now there's a pair of cufflinks. <laughs> and, and, you know, that would be 
And he's such a wonderful sense of humor. The Dodgers could be in fourth or fifth place and it'd be August and it'd be 100 degrees and they could have lost, you know, and, and you could just say, you could give them the straight line, oh, you know, I'll bet you've been looking forward to this game. Wild horses couldn't keep me from this game. <laughs> I never knew what wild horses meant, but, you know, he, he just stepped right up and um, he, he knew in that, in that moment, especially with the shirt and tie, old school, I'm going to be a guest in your home, so I'm going to dress up. Mm -hmm. um, always classy, always not being partisan. Red Barber taught him not to root, not to be a homer. And that's why the opposing teams appreciated him just as much because he appreciated their feats just as much as the Dodgers. Right. You, you know this. You've been in the press room a lot like it gets very clicky where the photographers are in one spot and the writers and the scouts and the, the old dodger facility with you know there was their own old eating area during my four years with the angels like you know i had this conversation with tim mead and he was like you know what was your most memorable time and you know it could have been like trout hitting the cycle or pool holes getting 500 and i said it was actually in 14 when the dodgers came in for uh, whatever, I don't know, maybe June, we're playing the interleague three games. And I said, Vinny comes and sits down. He had his driver at the time, and he, we're, we're sitting there, it's myself and Jordan and a couple other people, and he says, gentlemen, is there a spot for a, an old man like me? And all of us... <laughs> I've got a face in bad food and I'm eating and you hear Santa Claus talk and I just look up and I would have thrown everybody off the table. Yeah. Absolutely, sir. And he sat down with us and I didn't eat another bite after that. It was literally staring at him, watching him eat. And he was telling stories in between bites. I could have been eating raw meat at that point. It didn't matter. Santa Claus sat down with us and that was like one of my top Three moments of working with that club for those four years is having this guy who could have put on uh, an act and just been like, I'm better than all of you guys. I'm going to sit somewhere else. I'm going to sit privately. He just sat down with us like a regular old guy and told old buddy stories. Yep. And yep. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And like you said earlier, be careful when you meet your heroes. It was better. It was better. It was literally the best like 20 minutes in that god-awful eating area. It yeah. was unbelievable. My first year with the Dodgers, it's the summer of 89, coming back from San Francisco, the game. And so I'm just walking in the lobby and I said hi to people. It was a little outdoor or a little indoor bar area. Bar area. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. You doing anything? You want to join us? And it was just, it was Vinny and Billy Delory, the traveling secretary, and yeah. they were just sitting there talking for another hour. And, and this is... I'm the new person uh, on the beat, and it was just very relaxed. I remember at San Francisco, he said, "Can you walk with me?" Because he didn't want to walk by himself in a crowd. Mm -hmm. But you know, but um, I never lost that feeling. And one of the most amazing things was in 1987. Uh, I was a part-time, you know, spot reporter for the for the Dodger beat. I would fill in, and, okay. and in '87, they're going nowhere. And so they're yeah. hopelessly out of it, and it's September, and they say, can you cover the Sunday game? Sure, absolutely. And around the eighth inning, we get a press release, and it says, longtime broadcaster Jerry Doggett to retire after the season. Now, mind you, I've only covered a few Dodger games, right? After the game, and you know the setup, I'm at this little table in the press box, Vince Scully, Jerry Doggett, 
maybe about three or four other writers, and for an hour, Vin and Jerry are talking about their career and their memories together, and, and Vin is basically putting his arm around Jerry as far as, Jerry, this is your moment, and then seeing Vinny do that, and I was just like, Wow. I mean, it was just that type of that type of thing. And you knew that it was hard for Jerry because it was ending. But 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 their friendship for 32 years and the stories that Vinny would tell as far as just it's not easy being the number two announcer. But Jerry was always loyal or the always the friend. They'd call each other on each other's birthday um, after he retired. And, and it was just but in, to be part of that moment, I still can remember. Um, you know, old timer days when he would do the introductions um, or even when Larry Sherry came back in 2005 and Vinny said, do you still do that with your foot when you dry it? And Larry Sherry's like, how do you remember that? <laughs> you know, that was, the, that. you know, his, his mind, he, he could even remember the name of the play in the countryside, when he went to Japan in 1956, they took a break and they took a train and he, and he named the, the he named the name of the play in the Japanese countryside. And so that's the type of brain that you're dealing with. And I remember I was listening, I, I said I was listening to that old broadcast from 72, and he told the story about how disappointed he was about Joe DiMaggio because, you know, we were kids and we'd all heard about Joe DiMaggio's arm. And, and so there we are in the bleachers and he uncorks it and it goes past everyone into the dugout. Now, he's telling that story in 72, 2021. I said, yeah, I heard you tell the story about seeing DiMaggio's arm. Without missing a beat, he threw it in the dugout. We were just kids. We couldn't, and and so that's that's the amazing memory that he has. Jesus. And here's the amazing Vince, my favorite Vince Scully story. Have you ever heard of a guy named Larry Miggins? No. Larry Miggins barely played uh, for the St. Louis Cardinals, but back in middle school, when Fordham had a middle school, okay. uh, Vinny and Larry Miggins were classmates. And they were thinking, you know, what would we like to do? This is before an assembly. What would you like to do one day? And Vinny said, I'd love to be a broadcaster. And Larry and Megan said, I'd love to be a major leaguer. And so Vinny says, well, how kids go, they kept it going. They said, well, wouldn't that be something if, if you were in the majors and you hit a home run and I was behind the microphone? Wouldn't that be something? Yeah, that'd be something. Okay, flash forward to 1952, and Vinny is in his third year as the Dodger broadcaster, but he's barely on the air. Maybe an inning or two there because he was hired as the number three guy. Right. Cardinals come to town. He has dinner with Larry Miggins. Hey, maybe you'll play. It's nice to see you, blah, blah, blah. Suddenly, Larry Miggins comes up, comes up to the plate, and it's Vinny's inning. And Larry Miggins hits a home run. And Vinny said it's the only time ever he had a hard time calling the home run because suddenly he had tears in his eyes because he's thinking back to that day in the auditorium in middle school. He's like, I can't believe this just happened. And Larry Miggins hit only two home runs in his career. The only the, the other one was off Warren Spahn, but the <laughs> other home run was in front of his middle school friend. And Larry Mig Vinny and Larry Miggins are, are they're like 93 and 95. And Vinny says that of, of everything, you think of Kirk Gibson, you think of the Colfax perfect oh, yeah. game, you'd think that that was the ultimate. Don Larson, he said, no, Larry Miggins. He said, how could you How could you possibly imagine that that would come true? I could see him having a hard time getting through that because 
he's in his head he's probably flashbacking backing years prior and all of a sudden this is his his dear friend that must have been really tough to yeah. get him to get through those bases but when you've got Larry when you got the Larry Megan's moment so early in your career right that, that gives you perspective especially being the third guy he could have missed that by an inning no problem yeah absolutely wow how, how did you enjoy writing those books because you've had like four now? I've done six. 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 And the funny thing is... How did I miss two? Uh, well, it happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I th- well, did you do some recent? What's well, the... Well, the last year, the championship okay. book. Okay. Okay. Uh, that, that's called the term paper. That's, right. That's, that's where you see if they win it, and then suddenly you write it on horseback yeah. because... <laughs> Um, you know, you don't want to jinx it and write ahead, write it ahead of time. That was all for one. Uh, we've had the coast to coast. That was 2012. That was a coffee table book. That was a fun project yes, because I got that one. I did not want that to be. I remember speaking at the Getty once, and they gave me a present, and it was a big book. Oh, thank you. That's very nice. I opened it up. The pictures are the size of postage stamps. Who's yeah. ever writing the book? Blah 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 right. blah blah. And I'm like. We're not having gray space. I told the, the graphic designer, you're the star of this book because I'm not, whatever I have to say is, is going to be in 500 word snippets because we need to show the memorabilia. Gary Cypress was going to let us use his collection. So if you've got a collector that's going to let us use the letter from 1889 that allows the Brooklyn Dodgers to join the National League, you, you get out of the way. You just sure. write a little teeny caption and use all that great memorabilia <laughs> and all the great photography and everything like that. So we did Coast to Coast. And then um, there was Game of My Life, which was fun because that was 19 different chapters. And instead of me picking what their great moment was, whether it's Maury Wills talking about the end of the 62 season with the 104th stolen base, whether it's Garvey, the two home runs after meeting a gal in a wheelchair in 77, breaking the longest slump of his career, whether it's Scully and Larry Miggins, whether it's Carl Erskine talking about opening day 1958, only, a, only two-thirds of that chapter was me. The middle is the transcription of them in their own words, giving whatever background they want to whatever they want. So that's the important thing. And I had to make sure that my childhood hero, Jimmy Wynn, was in there (laughs) talking about the Grand Slam that he originally didn't remember. But here's the thing I remember about that. I've got him on speaker, and I'm in the press box, and I'm staring at that pavilion as he's telling the story. And he's telling it in an empty ballpark on speakerphone, and I'm getting the chills suddenly because even bet. though I know what's going on, I'm like, unbelievable. That was uh, that was fun. And then Arcadia Publishing, uh, we had three books, Dodger Stadium, Los Angeles Dodgers, and Dodger Town. And being a photographer, you know the problem, thousands and thousands of photos of which to choose, right. but you've only got maybe 200 slots, 128 pages, 240 slots. Do I use the action shot of Drysdale or the portrait? And how do you uh, decide that? How do you whittle that down? You don't want to have, uh, you don't want to use cliche shots. You want to use shots. Everyone's seen Rick Monday saving the flag. Right. I don't need to use that shot. But how about the shot with James Rourke in a pregame ceremony where he's being honored and Rick Monday is next to him? And there's a reason for that, not only because people haven't seen that photo, but I want people to know who James Rourke was and the guy that took the photo. And so I want to show outtakes and I want people to, oh, I didn't know that. I never saw that shot before. Um, I'm not going to show a cliche shot from the 74 World Series. I want to show Tony Kubek in these horrid plaid pants (laughs) 
interviewing Steve Garvey and, and Sal Bando, you know, before the World Series with the mule in the background because <laughs> that was the, the mascot. So you want to have have fun with it, but also make it educational. So I just didn't want it to be a shot. Oh, I've seen that before. Do you I, enjoy the research? Oh, are you kidding? Because I'm learning as I go along all the things that you learn. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Here's a cool story that I had no idea. The cover of the 1978 Media Guide had the Home Run Quartet with a 30 on the scoreboard. Oh, so, right, yeah. So you got Garvey, you got Reggie Smith, Ron Say, Dusty Baker, and it's this beautiful shot. And in the background, the scoreboard, there's the 30, and it's all posed. Well, it turns out... It was staged ahead of time. Dusty doesn't hit the last homer until Sunday against right, J.R. Richard. That very last day. Richard Key, the team photographer, on that Friday says, look, just in case this happens, it's probably good to get it out of the way now. Okay, fine. And Richard Key promises this photo will never see the light of day if it doesn't happen. So Bob Hunter Jr., whose father was the sports writer, when the Dodgers came out, he's in the Hall of Fame, He's all ready to cue the scoreboard. So for a brief second, they get them all together, and then all of a sudden, what? And they and the One, photo two, three. shoot. The photo shoot took all of maybe ten seconds because they didn't want you know in baseball right. you don't want to jinx it. But it turned out they took it ahead of time, and then Dusty <gasps> hits the home run. How did you find that out? Richard Key told okay, me. Okay, Key told and you. He, and, and he had the relationship with the players. They trusted him. That okay, we I'll trust you. It. Yeah, exactly. It'll never see the light of but day. But I thought that was the coolest thing. When you wow. find out things like that, when you find out, um, I'll give you a great example of, of how you never know a random piece of information is going to comfort somebody. The widow of Mike Marshall had called me a um, couple, couple months after Mike had passed. And they want to put together a service and, and look at photos and everything like that. And, and, you know, you're going over the memories. And I said, you know, one of the great memories that your husband provided Ron Say was an, an afternoon when Ron Say went into the kitchen in the middle of the game and caught your husband red-handed with a pile of Ritz crackers, a jar of peanut butter, and a half gallon of milk. And it was just like, you know, the little kid caught, you know, going into the cookie jar. And Say cracks himself up with that story. He says, oh, I can still see that. Mike Marshall's got this look on his face like, yeah, I need protein. And I'm like, yeah, right. And, but these little things that, but in that moment, I can, I can give maybe some comfort to the widow smiling, thinking that her husband's eating peanut butter on Ritz and the third baseman busts him <laughs> in the middle of the game. So in that moment, you can have some levity because it's a serious subject. Yes, he's passed and, and everything like that. And that's the fun part. When you can take something to make somebody feel better, um, you just yeah, you have no idea that the peanut butter story you hear 20 years later is going to comfort the widow, hopefully, years later and that's that's the, that's the fun part when you could when you can use history like that um, for, for different purposes that's the nice thing history can be used um, either to tell stories to comfort others to enlighten others um, and, and even just to have fun just to just to say look this is this is fun what we're doing. If, if the Dodgers don't win it this year it's not the end of the world no. you yeah. would, you would love for them to do it. But if it hasn't happened in 130 years as far as winning two in a row, that just shows you how hard it is. 
Um, but what does it teach you? It, it teaches you. Nobody felt sorry for the Giants when from 1955 to 2009, they went all that time without winning a World Series. <laughs> you have to savor these moments. Because here's the thing for Dodger fans. Yes, they've won eight division titles in a row. And so you've got this Ming dynasty going on as far as just everybody's saying now, okay, we'll see you in the playoffs. Okay, we'll see you in the World Series. We'll see, you know, hope we go to this. Everybody has this great expectations. Do you know how many, what the record was for consecutive playoff appearances before this current run? I don't. Two. Two? Two. Wow. They never, from 1890 until the current streak of eight in a row. I would have thought three, maybe four. Nope. So many close calls. But uh, even those mid 70s, huh? Think about Brooklyn. Uh, Oh, yeah. Think about Brooklyn. 52, 53, 55, 56. And then in Los Angeles, you had uh, 65, 66, 77, 78, and then 95 and 96, and then 2008, 2009, that was it. They, they, you think how many times they came close. Sure. 49, they win it. 50, they lose on the last day of the season. 51, they lose on the last day of the season. They win it in 52 and 53, but it was always just... Just two in a row. That was the record. So now it's an embarrassment of riches in terms of it's it's amazing what Ned Coletti and Andrew Friedman have put together in terms of uh, this incredible streak. But just think from 1988, that Kirk Gibson year winning the World Series until the Lima victory in the 2004. They went all that time without a postseason win. Right. I think the Braves fans got a little... uh complacent too when they did that was it nine or ten or something they had so many in a row in 1991 they outlast the dodgers and then they have something like 14 in a row and then there were times you know in the beginning of the playoffs you'd flip on the tv it'd be tbs game in the morning well, here we are sean mcdonald coming from the and you'd see the place half empty because right. they're waiting for the world series there and and it's the same thing that happened in 1959 because the braves are in that playoff with the dodgers they finish in a tie the braves had won the world series in 57 58 they lose in seven to the yankees blowing a three to one lead but still national league champs 59 they tie and there's nobody in the stands for that first playoff game. Why? Because it rained that morning. And so they're probably thinking, well, we'll just wait for the World Series. Well, Why yeah. do we want to come out? And so the Dodge, you know, that's not that big of a crowd. And Danny McDevitt starts the game. Uh, Larry McSherry throws like the last seven and two thirds. They win three to two. They come back to the Coliseum, wrap it up with that six to five game. We go to Chicago. Gil Hodges and Carl Ferrillo are the heroes. But it's the same thing with the Dodger fans in 62 because here's the first year of the stadium and they're supposed to win it all and everybody's got those 62 World Series tickets. But wait a sec. They go one and five on that last homestand. The Giants catch them and there's going to be a three-game playoff and the the attendance for the first home game, the first game's in San Francisco, then the second home game in Los Angeles. They've only got like 30,000 and change. It's not a big crowd because everybody's sitting on their World Series tickets. So it's exactly what you said about, um, you know, you're not necessarily going to get big crowds for big games because this great level of expectation or if you're already sitting on your World Series tickets, you you keep your fingers crossed, but you're not necessarily going to go to the preliminary game (laughs) if you've got work. Like, I'll I'll see you at the World Series. Yeah. How do you find your stories? Do you... Spend a lot of time around the players and just kind of listen? I think you listen to everybody because so many times people will tell stories and they don't realize that they're a story. 
And sure. I, I can remember 2003, I had a phone call from a guy named Wally Wasnick, and he said, I'm doing a book about a guy named Roy Gleason. And Roy Gleason uh, had been with the Dodgers briefly in 63. Okay. And he was an outfielder uh, from Garden Grove. And Wally met this guy, Roy Gleason, only because he was test driving a car. And he said, didn't you go to Garden Grove High? And turns out, yeah. And it turned out he was the big baseball star. What happened to you? He finds out that Roy Gleason, after his cup of coffee in 63, goes off to Vietnam and is drafted and never went back to the majors and only had one at bat. And so he's like, wow, this would make a great story. And so even though he only had that one at bat and that, that appear, he played in eight games, seven as a pinch runner and, and <laughs> this, this one at bat, Here's a guy that went to Vietnam, won the Purple Heart, tried to come back in 68 and was, wow. you know, in, but it wasn't necessarily a household word, but right. he was interested. Okay. Roy Gleason in Vietnam is hit and, and he's six foot five and Jesus. he was doing the, he ended up doing the point because so many people in his troops, um, you know, passed away. And so here's this Vietnam vet that won the Purple Heart. He's not necessarily on the radar because people don't necessarily know who he is, um, but this person was doing a book, research on him. Okay, well, Roy Gleason comes out and he doesn't think he's that big of a deal. He thinks everybody's forgotten about him. And he said, and we said, did you get your World Series ring? And he said, yeah, but um, when I got hit, my locker got raided, you know, the foot locker, and so he lost his ring in Vietnam. And so, okay. This, this guy was so nice and so low-key. And he came out, and it, and it was very timid because a ball player, if they think they've been forgotten, the worst thing is that they, they call the stadium and somebody says, who are you? Right. And, and after the second or third time, you just don't want to call because you don't want that, that feeling. Sure. And so we invited him to come out, and Bruce Froming sees him off the elevator. He goes, Roy Gleason, Northwestern League, 1961. And Gleason's like, you remember? And it turned out people did remember. And so there is a, uh, back in the day, there was this wall that had all the names of Dodgers who'd played. Right. And he goes, I probably am not on it because I only you know, had one at bat. And I'm thinking, please be on the wall. Please be on the wall. And he sees his name on the wall, Roy Gleason, even though he had one at bat. Then he says something I'll never forget. I'd rather be on this wall than the other one. And you're like, oh. Oh, exactly. God. So this starts to get momentum now because we've already fallen in love with Roy Gleason, the person. Doesn't want anything from us. Thinks he's been forgotten. We learned that he's had his World Series ring stolen and you know, lost in Vietnam. It just happens to be it's going to be the 40th anniversary of his rookie season. So we thought, okay, let's have him throw out the first pitch, you know, for that. And so Vinny gets in on the act. And so Vinny interviews him on the pregame show. Back then they had a weekend show. And, and Vinny has him tell the story about his ring. And he, and he turns to the camera and he says, uh, for those of you who don't know, this is what a ring looks like. And this is the world. Say, Roy, what happened? And he, and he tells the story. So he's setting up what's going to happen. Vinny knows what's going to happen, but Roy has no idea. So on a Saturday, Roy comes no out way. and he's going to throw out the ceremonial first pitch. Uh, with us, former Dodger, 40th anniversary, rookie season. And... He throws out the first pitch, and meanwhile, his two sons, 
who didn't really know much about his baseball career because Roy didn't talk about it that much, they get to see it and they get to see this moment. And the son, I've got to get him off the phone somehow because right before this Hollywood moment's about to happen, he's on the phone going, what? How many girls are there? Oh, man, I'll try to be there as soon as I... He's worried about a party. And so I had to think, how am I going to get this kid off the phone? I said, well, National League rules, we can't have... We can't use cell phones on the field. I just thought, what am I going to say? Right, he, goes, yeah. he goes, oh, okay, okay. And Roy later was proud. He goes, yeah, just like his old man. Oh, that's great. So all of a sudden, this voice comes on the PA system. Hold it, Roy. Hold it. The whole team goes on to the line. Jim Tracy, the manager, comes out, presents him with his World Series ring. Oh, nobody, he had no idea what was coming. And so he goes down the line shaking hands and he sees Edwin Jackson, the rookie pitcher, and he pats him and he says, take care of that number because he wore number 36. Okay, now we come to the national anthem. So you've got a Vietnam vet, winner of the Purple Heart, who's wearing his Purple Heart. Suddenly he's got the uh, ring and the color guard comes out. How's he going to react? He salutes. And it's just like, he's oh. saluting for his, and, and so something like that, it's just, but it all came from a Wally Wasnack. I'm writing this story about, Wally, I'm writing this book about Roy Gleason. Do you have any photos? Well, come on out. And, you know, I knew a little of the background, but I didn't know everything. And so as you're fun, you go, this is crazy. And Plaschke wrote about it, but we knew, but we let Plaschke in on what was going to happen. So he wrote all about Roy Gleason on that Saturday, but nobody, but, but the public didn't know what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Vinny knew what was going to happen. And so Gleason throws out the first pitch that night, that next morning, Rob Manchel had produced an entire show, a half-hour show, about Roy Gleason. He had no idea, and he was up all night editing the footage to show him throwing out the first pitch. Wow. So you just never know. And, and here's, here's the best part. Roy still calls. Roy, Roy and I, you know, we, we, his, his birthday is April 9th. I'm April 20th. <laughs> We still call one another. We're still great friends, and, and that's the most important thing because now he's know that there, he knows that there's not a bar- there's not been a barrier since 2003. He's not been forgotten. He can come out for Veterans Day for the World Series 2017 Major League Baseball. Invited him to come out to honor you know military, and so it's not just the Dodgers doing something for him. It's Major League Baseball recognizing him. As a, as a military hero, as somebody who served his country. And so that moment put him in, in the spotlight. But the great thing was, on his own merits, he gets invited to things. It's not the Dodgers, hey, mm-hmm. here's Roy Gleason. You know? And so the second, you know, the, this last 20 years of his life, he can be recognized how he should as far as what, you know, what, what he gave up, everything that he went through. Because he said he was an immature kid in high school. And he said, once that fighting starts, you don't know if you're going to run or not. And he said, I didn't run, you know, as far as the, the combat. Sure. And he'll talk about the patriotism and what Rick Monday saving the flag meant to him. And But it all 
all stemmed from a phone call. I'm just wondering if you have photos about Roy Gleason. And it just, it just evolved into that. And then uh, Wally, Wally ended up writing the book. And then it's a, it's got three bylines, you know, Wally, Roy, and myself. Wow. I mean, is there any way you could have imagined that sitting down with, with Tommy Hawk, trying to get through that interview thinking that this is how impactful the your job would have been touching people's lives. I mean, I see how oh, emotional no. it is for you. No, it's, it's because the job didn't exist when I was a kid. Right. So I couldn't have dreamed for it. Here's the other crazy thing. We haven't even talked about Tommy Lasorda. And I got a phone call 2007 um, in spring training. You got to go take care of Tommy. His assistant took a leave of absence. <laughs> You're the only one that can do it. So on one day's notice, they sent me to be Tommy's driver. Oh, good God. And I said, on one condition, that that's all I do because I can't do any PR duties. Yeah. I, I, it's got to be Tommy 24-7. And it was the most amazing 28 days, 14 seconds, and you know, 37 minutes of my life because to see him behind the scenes at age 80 have all that energy. Yeah, at that time, sure. That was the amazing thing. And so you, you just learn... I was very close to my grandparents, you know, on my mother's side, and I and I know to appreciate seniors and, and everything that they've gone through. So, you know, I I I knew that there's a certain way that you should treat a senior citizen, um, and so I think that would that helped, but also um, the knowledge really helped. And we had our breakthrough moment. Tommy didn't like to eat alone. He said, "So I need." You. He said, "You know, sit with me at meals." Well, that meant nine shows because in Vero Beach, breakfast was from seven to ten. So that meant three breakfast shows. Tommy would Tommy's table was right by the head of the line, so he'd pull people over, and it was just like you know, three shows at breakfast, three shows at lunch, three shows at night. How much and, weight did you put on those twenty eight? Well, you learn, you learn. Nurse the coffee and and things like that. And, and but here's 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 the amazing thing. Tommy one day is sitting there and he's going, God, I'm trying to think of this guy that I helped beat curfew. And Tommy and I were very respectful on the beat, but I wouldn't say we were close. And I said, well, tell me who it is. You wouldn't know. He, didn't, he wasn't in the majors. I said, try me. He said, well, he coached baseball at West Point. Nothing. In college, he played football at Duke. Didn't do, he was a punter. Didn't do me any good. But then he said the magic words. He played in the Rose Bowl. Because when you grow up in Pasadena, not only Dodger baseball, but there is a little football game around here called the Rose Bowl. It's a little one. Yeah. And when you are a reader, you also are interested in Rose Bowl history. I met Wrongway Regals, who had gone the wrong way in the 1929 Rose Bowl. Um, I had met uh, so many people. And, and so... I knew Duke had only been in one Rose Bowl, 1939. And on that day, they played USC. And they were undefeated and unscored upon. And SC is the underdog. And Duke takes a 3 to nothing lead into the fourth quarter. And with about two minutes to go, USC put in a fourth-string quarterback named Doyle Knave. And the wide receiver that he would hook up with on four long passes and upset Duke was a guy named Al Kruger. But because... He was with, uh, he lived in Antelope Valley. They called him Antelope Al. 
And later, when I helped Doyle Nave down the stairs uh, at the opening of the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame in 1989, he goes, thank you, young man. My name is Doyle Nave. And I said, oh, where's Animal Pal? And he goes, oh, I guess you know me. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I know all that. And so I only thought I knew one name on Duke because there was a kicker that was doing the coffin corner kicks, putting Nessie in bad field position. And I said, are you talking about Eric Tipton? And Tommy had this look, like his eyes are wide open. And he goes, how would you know that? How would, he goes, how would you know that? And I, and I, and he, I don't even think he listened to the explanation. Yeah. He, he just said, how would you know that? And suddenly, you know, in the Tommy Lasorda manner, he knows everything. <laughs> he knows everything. He knows everything. And, and this is the funny thing. That was the breakthrough moment. And, and, and I became Tommy's Google because later in the year, when his assistant, Colin Gunderson, came back, I'd get calls from Colin. Tommy'd be in the middle of a story and he'd forget a name. Call Mark. Call Mark. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we, and so, but in that moment, Eric Tipton was the punter for Duke. All right. Now, here's, we've, we've talked about so many things where it's like, this is amazing. I'm born... April 20, 1965. Eric Tipton is born April 20, 1915, exactly 50 years earlier. So it's, it's I don't know what? how to, yeah, I don't know how to explain what? that. Yeah, exactly. I, I I looked it up one time. I go, well, how old are you? What? April 29. I, so, you know, that's, that's, but who, who would have thought an obscure Rose Bowl tidbit from the 1939 game involving USC Duke would suddenly impress a Hall of Fame manager years later in Vero Beach when he's trying to think of a name, but it has something to do with baseball. It has, you know, and that's, yeah. that's, that's the, but, but I still remember the look on it. How do you know? How do you know? And then here's the funny thing with Tommy. Once he knew that, he'd bring in old photos and he'd bring in stuff from the 1930s and 40s. And who's that? Who's that? He'd have like a guessing game. We'd be driving in Vero Beach during the 28 days. He wanted to listen to Sirius Channel number four. That was the 40 station. So he's like, who's that? Who's that? That's Kay Kaiser. That's, how do you know that? <laughs> because my grandparents watch Lawrence Welk. So that's, so, right. right. Whoever thought listen, having to watch Lawrence Welk would help me out years later when I'm on <laughs> I-95 and Ford in the middle of the night. You know, and he's singing Jerry Vale and all this stuff, and I know exactly who these people are. Can you imagine? You're driving around Tommy Lasorda, and he's yeah. singing. He's singing, but it only lasts one song because then Thank he. God. But then he would he'd fall asleep with his New York Post, mm -hmm. and he he'd cuddle it like a teddy bear, and he'd be in the back seat sleeping, and I'd be driving, looking at the Hall of Fame manager in the rearview mirror, going. Nobody would believe this. Nobody. Nobody. And, and, and later he'd bring in bits of film. What about this? What about that? Can you, he didn't know anything about scanners. And so I would, I, he'd bring in these picture packs from the 1960s. And suddenly there he is as a scout with Rube Walker, Gil Hodges, and Joe Pignatano. Tommy's got a cardigan sweater on. He's a scout. And it's the New York Match coaching staff circa 1968 in Vero Beach. And when Tommy was ill this last past year, uh, before he passed away, he's in the hospital. And he had, he had shown me 
some films that, you know, this is maybe about 10 years ago. Can you do anything with this? Can you do anything with that? What about this? And one time he brought in a keychain. This is my first date with Joe. And you hold it up to the light, and it was one of those oh, things where, like a Viewmaster, you, right, could, you would yeah. say, but I can't get the photo out. Well, I had a digital camera, and I stuck it up to the light, put the lens up to it. The next day, I handed him an 8x10 because, you know, Right. That I knew how to do that. How did you do that? <laughs> oh my, he can do anything. You know, that was the great, if, you know. <laughs> David Copperfield. Exactly. But here's the thing. He gave me a video and, and I had it transferred at Costco. And I don't think that he ever looked at the DVD because it was a home movie. And so when he was in the hospital and I thought, you know what? What can I do for him? And I had an extra copy and I mailed it to his daughter. And I said, I don't know if he has ever seen this before. And so they gave him a computer, they propped it up in front of him and he is in the hospital. Suddenly it's 1956, his daughter is maybe three years old, his fam, it's Christmas time and Tommy's back home again. And it's Christmas at Norristown and he can see his parents and he can see his little girl opening the, and, and it was like, you've got to be kidding me as far as he'd never, he never bothered to see it. And to have something like that suddenly come back 10 years later, and this isn't just, hey, look what I've got or look what I found. This is a man in the hospital that may not get out of the hospital. He's not home for the holidays. And because of this that he showed me 10 years earlier, suddenly he can go back to 1956, you know, when he's 30 years old, and he can, he basically has Christmas at home. And so that's why you, you long ago live up trying to give up this reason as far as why this stuff happens. And in the moment, if, if, if Laura has, and Laura had never seen that before. Whoa, and really? So it was, but it was perfect. It what was an perfect. emotional roller coaster exactly. must have been in that room for everybody. Absolutely. Suddenly, there's her dad's 30, her grandparents, she's three. Yeah, there's his mom and dad. And then the beauty, um, there's Tommy in the middle of all the photos because my nephew, when he was seven years old, went to Tommy's office and got the Facts of Life speech. And he said, Michael, you look like a fine young man. I want you to always remember one thing. And I thought it was going to be stay in school, don't do drugs, listen to your parents. He said, always stand in the middle of the photo so they can't crop you out. <laughs> and my nephew had a blank look on his face and I mouthed to him, I'll explain later. And I ended up using that in the obit, you know, in terms of, but that how that's how Tommy lived his life in terms of um, Laura later called, Tommy had passed and they were going through his stuff and they found a painting. And they said, what is this of? We don't know what this is of. And this is Tommy with a bunch of kids and they're asking me over the phone. They're trying to, to trying to explain this painting. And I said, "Oh, I think that paint that painting is based on a 1944 photo. He was with the Connie Mack All Stars in the local newspaper. And and I, and this is what happens all the time when you're saying this stuff off the top of your head." you know somewhere someone's rolling their eyes, you know? Because right, right. John Chapper in the publicity department says, don't ask him a question unless you're prepared <laughs> for a five-minute story. But I said, this is where Tommy is about to sign with the Phillies, and he's playing in this all-star game, and the, the mayor of, of the town was there to take a photo with all the local all-stars. Well, the mayor is sitting behind the desk, and guess what 15-year-old is standing right next to the mayor? <laughs> and it's Tommy at 15. 
And so, you know, but it was nice because because Laura didn't necessarily hear that story. Wisdom. Yeah, Did, hadn't had heard that story before. And, um, you know, you could go on and on with Tommy in terms of uh, all those wonderful things, but that's just how he lived his life. But now he's passed, and it's important for either the family members or people that knew Tommy to know what he went through, what he, you know, when, when you're the number three pitcher on your high school team and the coach only uses two pitchers, yet you still make the major leagues, and one of the other fun moments with Tommy was when I found his high school yearbook on eBay. He'd never seen it before because he had left school by then. And they had, I think what happened was they printed the photo from the previous year because spring sport, you know. Right, right. So Tommy had never seen that before. And there's Tommy in the front row with his Harpo Marx hair. And he's, you know, and Tommy didn't say a word for 30 seconds and that's how I knew he hadn't seen it before and the first words out of his mouth he pointed to a guy in a suit in the back row and he goes that's the guy that didn't play me <laughs> so even in that moment even though you know even though hey you got this high school yearbook isn't this great he's still mad at the coach that's the guy that didn't play me <laughs> that guy right there and and oh. Tom and, and that was fun because as Tommy got older, you could always get him going by having talk. You know, um, when they honored him at the at the Getty Museum for his 90th birthday, and and I knew he was frail. I whispered to him as we're doing the photo ops, the red carpet. I said, I was going to wear my Alston jersey, and he goes. <laughs> <laughs> Are the Dodgers going to do like you know we've we've lost Tommy Hawk we lost Tommy Lasorda you know Vin like what who's going to replace the Dodgers is this like mental figure for nothing, them nothing replaces the Dodgers because if you think about it what we lose in the moment you think about in the 1940s and 50s the boys of summer you think about Jackie Robinson you think about everything that happens and overall you look at what the Dodgers have meant to both Brooklyn and Los Angeles so that's why I think it's so important that these people are so important but also now we have to remind people who Colfax and Drysdale were. Mm -hmm. We have to remind people Gibson and Hershiser. Now go back to the 1950s. We've got to remind people that first championship. We got to remind people the circumstances coming to LA. And, and there was a place called Ebbets Field. There was a man named Jackie Robinson that changed history. And so that's the important thing to look at overall what a franchise can mean to a community. And it just gets better and better and better because as long as you have that appreciation and um, just think in September now, everybody coming out to the ball game, the same thing that we talked about as far as they want to be there. They don't know what's going to happen. And everybody's going there for different reasons. Sure. Maybe you're young and you, you dream of being Walker Bueller. Maybe you're older and you remember Oral Hershiser, 1988. Maybe you're really old, and I remember Scully, Transistor <laughs> Radio, things like that. That's the that's the thing that you have to preserve as far as this mechanism because it brings people together. That's the most important thing. Um, we can't control the outcome, but we can control our outlook, and we just have to remember how much a group dynamic of any sports team whether it's pro whether it's amateur right you know indiana hoosiers 
Um, and, you know, Wayne Gretzky, the Edmonton years, any, anything like that, something that you can savor and, and still remember. And, and that's why photography is so important, too. Um, MLB.com is going to do a profile on John Suhu, Good. Which, I, which I think is wonderful. But the thing is, you got to remind people, Andy Bernstein's in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Now, John Suhu should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but any photographer should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. There's the not Baseball one. Hall of Fame does not have that. And no. so I think that these institutions we can't take for granted because this stadium, I look at Janet Marie Smith, our vice president of stadium development. She came with the Guggenheim Group, and it just warms my heart to, for her to oversee two $100 million facelifts and to be able to see what that center field area, it looks like Disneyland now oh. as far as, and to see the looks on people's faces, how much they enjoy it because... I know my kids have been killing me to see it. We are the third oldest ballpark in the majors and you just take can't take for granted these cathedrals and that's, I truly believe that the, the, the Dodgers are a cathedral and it's not this the world of the Dodgers, it's the world of gathering. Right. It's the world of celebrating and that's the beauty. If we knew it was going to happen how boring would that be right we could have the rug pulled out from under us but we're going to have fun speculating we're going to have fun reminiscing and then we're just like everybody else we're going to have to see how the movie turns out <laughs> is it still your dream job oh <laughs> absolutely i've never had a bad day at the ballpark um you can't. no i refuse to because and I, and I can't use the, the, I'm employed by the Dodgers, but I can't use the word work because it's so ridiculous as far as what I get to do. And when somebody, when Will Ferrell comes to the stadium and says he wants to wear a Vic Davilio jersey, <laughs> but nobody knows what number he wore, but suddenly they look at me and I have to go 33 and they get the eye roll, you know, I've got, it's, you know, that, that, but, but again, it's not about me and what I know. It's about everybody else, and I can see how much they enjoy it because um, I'm 57, gosh, what would you say, like 300 years worth of memories inside, you know, in terms of just, uh, it's, it's just so overwhelming. It's easier to talk about other people's accomplishments. It's easier to see on September the 3rd, 2021, you say to yourself, oh, that's the 50th anniversary of Ron Say's first game. And then you text Ron Say, and he didn't know that. And he gets a big kick that somebody remembered that. You know, and, and he goes, wow, you surprised me. I didn't realize that. And, and that's the fun part, you know, to, to involve other people to, um, you know, the thing I love doing too is, is you know, either giving away promo items or if, if you can try to play matchmaker and let somebody meet somebody or something like that. Um, that's the fun part because, you know, you've got all the, the I, you know, you've got all the memories and you're just at a loss when you think of it for you. So you have to just suddenly you got to deflect it because otherwise if you right. go down that rabbit hole and think of all the stuff that you've been able to, to, to do, you're just like, okay, I, some stories it's all of a sudden you, you know, you choke up talking about and you realize, wow, this is, you know, um, you, you, you think you're a good speaker, but if you suddenly give this personal, yeah, personal thing, then it gets you. It could slide yeah. real quick. Exactly. How much of the stadium has your personal touch as far as like, I always found it magical when they made the change. You took the elevator all the way down and you come out and it's on the ground level with the locker rooms, like the curated walls, the World Series, the the 
pictures and the post, how much of that have you touched and found and researched? I've got to give credit to Janet Marie Smith because what she'll do is she's kind of like Mary Poppins in terms of just popping in, looking at the local history, absorbing the local history, and it's a collaboration because she may have in her mind a look that she wants, but she's not necessarily going to know what the iconic photo is or okay. what the significance is. And so that's the nice thing. I, I talked about earlier when they'll say, uh, can you write a caption for this? And it turns out to be for a statue or a plaque. Um, they give they, they trust you enough to be able to do something like that. Um, same for promo items. You know, when you're writing something historic for a promo item, um, she's really got a great gift because she's got the touch in terms of emotionally what she wants, but is this the best photo? What's the story here? What's the significance? Um, and that's the really great thing to have somebody that's going to, come in and listen she's um, doing and, a great and a, job and have a collab and have a collaboration god because it's it has made the stadium just a thousand times beautiful to visually look at great job she's doing she's she's she she is amazing and and what's funny is when i got my gold pass from uh lenora romero from hr it was there was absolutely no ceremony she heard us talking and she goes congratulations Congratulations for what? And she handed us this little wallet type thing, and it was our gold pass that, you know, lifetime pass for anywhere in the majors. And uh, Christian Campbell, who I knew as a little leaguer in Glendora, uh, now works for us, you know, X number of years later in Blue Crew. And we both looked at him and we said, Don't get old, kid, because this is what happens to you. And I said, Let's all take a group photo to make it look like this was planned. <laughs> And I, and I told Christian, I said, well, I guess you're on deck for 2046. Um, but to be able to share that moment with Janet Marie, because I can't think of another. She's just as influential as a Scully, as, as a Brenner, as a Danny Goodman, because, you know, when that childhood ballpark of yours gets put into her hands, yeah. and suddenly people are excited about it as opposed to wondering about the future of the stadium. Now they're looking at this as a destination again in terms mm -hmm. of, wow, look at all this cool stuff. You really have, uh, because your childhood's there. Who, yes. Who can visit their childhood and... I will tell a, a, a story that uh, when I got the gold pass, I immediately, and I don't normally do this, but it's sort of like, I don't know how to describe it, but you go down to the seat where your very first game was, mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, 49 years ago, who would have thought that type thing? Yeah. But then you snap out of it because an hour later... We had a new employee, and her name is Lori Luna, and she's going she's gonna to be working um, for Courtney Moore as far as diversity recruitment, okay. and this was going to be her very first day. Now, in my mind, it reminds me of Pride of the Yankees when Lou Gehrig decides he's got to sit out, and so now he's in the dugout. And they announced that there's going to be Babe Dahlgren is now in for Gehrig, and there's a moment in that dugout where Gehrig gives him a look and Dahlgren is about to run on the field and he sort of has this sort of respectful look like, gosh, I'm taking your job. And Gary Cooper's character smiles and says, good luck, kid. And I remembered that because, all right, I've just been given the gold pass. I can go anywhere I want in any ballpark, all that. Janet Marie, we did our Christian Campbell joke, don't get old, kid, that type thing. But now an hour later, Lori Luna 
is Babe Dahlgren. She is starting her Dodger career. This is her very first day. And so now she's going to get a tour, and now she is starting this chapter. And so whatever's gone on in the past, she not only represents the present, but she represents the future. And that's the beauty about baseball in terms of this you know, cycle and it keeps giving. And so we went all around the stadium and she's, um, as she had a Nike background and I told her I had just finished Phil Knight's audio book <laughs> and we're talking about things like that. But that's how I, I was thinking, hey, this is great. We got our gold pass, but guess what? It keeps going. And now we have a new employee and let's make sure that she's indoct- indoctrinated uh, because now she's starting her career. And it's funny how you see those parallels. If you've been around long enough, yeah. you see many, many parallels. And so I don't think uh, when I met Lori Luna that she would rem- that she thought, oh, I'm probably reminding him of the Babe Dahlgren, Lou Gehrig scene <laughs> in Pride of the Yankees. But that immediately went through my mind. <laughs> it tells you how your mind exactly. works. Exactly. And, and I cannot share those stories at home because otherwise... <laughs> You know, I always hear two words, who and cares, followed by what's for dinner. So, you know, it's like get it out of your system during the day because, you know, you've got to try to have a functional, uh, normal, normal life away from the ballpark, even though you do not do not know how to operate a garden hose. And you probably need to write down on an index card what your sister's name is. Otherwise, you'll need a few clues. (laughs) Well, like I said before we started... There was, I, I followed, when I was with the Angels, I followed Social Out, and you were moderating between him and Fernando, and I knew right then, like, oh my God, like, this this guy is fantastic, and when this whole podcast came about in my head, you were on the list, and I can't thank you enough for this time, these memories, like, this has been absolutely, like, a dream. I could, we could sit here till... I don't know. When are the Dodgers back? Tuesday? Monday? Don't ask tough questions. Yeah, ask me about 1942. <laughs> <laughs> we could do this forever. I know I got a dear friend, Mike Greenlee. He's probably going to listen to this podcast like 20 times. He's a diehard Dodger fan. He loves this stuff. I mean, Mark, I can't thank you enough to actually take the time. And I know telling stories you're great at and just to do this. This has been an absolute blessing. Well, it's my pleasure. And I, and I thank you just so much because I appreciate all of your photography work, the work of John Suhu. And as I've been talking about all of this, I, I, I just, I just shrug my shoulders in terms of just, I can't believe just that these, I tell these stories. It just doesn't, uh, sometimes it doesn't seem real when I tell these stories because, um, enough time passes and you're like, wow, did all this did all this stuff happen? So did the twenty-five uh, years seem fast? Sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. Because when you see the field, sometimes you go back to your childhood, and so sometimes the only time it seems fast is when you're texting Eric Carroll on September first, and you're telling him "Happy thirtieth anniversary," you know, of your first game, and you're still remembering that he pinch hit for or pinch ran for Mike Sharperson on a day game against the Cubs. Then you're going, "Wow, where'd that thirty years go?" Yeah. Or if you see. You know, your seven-year-old nephew uh, in Lasorda's office getting the facts of life, life speech, and then suddenly he's about to graduate from nursing school. So when you see other people 
you know, grow up. But in my mind, I'm still, I'm still the seven-year-old in the, in the, in the pavilion having the time of his life. Well, I've had the time of my life sitting here and talking to you. This has just been absolutely awesome. I can't thank you enough. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation. 